when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. What's good, Internet? It's November 29th, and you are listening to Waypoint Radio, episode 526. I'm your host, Rob Zachney, and I'm joined by Ricardo Contreras. Hello. Patrick Klopik. How uncouth would it be if this was instead filled with gravy? Uh, so Patrick is would you holding up a Waypoint. Would I, would I sip? Would I, would I sip? Would you sip gravy? Would you sip it? Would I sip gravy? <laughs> like um, if, maybe if it was stra- strained so that the chunks were gone. Right, like depending Chunks? on what kind of gravy you make. Well, so, you know, like I'm almost thinking like I. So I know gravy technically is a liquid, but my the consistency of no, 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 no. my I mean, heart Jill- is. Julep gravy is 100 percent valid. Yeah, yeah but uh, you and and also, like, I'm always chunks. Yeah, but you strain it before you put it into the boat, into the gravy boat. No, not always. Well, so, not no, always. it's there's there's a whole spectrum <laughs> of of gravies and, and approaches. Uh, however, so okay, I will say this. That kind of, so, so like turkey gravy, mm. not my favorite thing in the world, probably would not sip. If you were like, Rob, I have filled my Waypoint mug with delicious biscuit gravy, I would be like, oh, just pass it over here. Let me. What's the let- difference? I'm only most intimately familiar with the turkey gravy. What is the, the, the difference on biscuit gravy? I'm sure I've had it. I just oh, don't. It's, like, I couldn't, so, I it's couldn't. like sausage gravy. That's that's okay. it. It's, it's oh, like okay. por- it's like pork sausage and mm-hmm, very peppery mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. you know. But yeah, if you mean like biscuits and gravy, that's that's a different. That's I'm just thinking gravy. like gravy is essentially a soup, right? And like you can put soup in a cup and mm-hmm. you can sip it. Why can't <laughs> why can't I put gravy in a cup and sip it? Uh, I love gravy. Is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> it is, like I'm the person that takes. The, I have to do the gravy last. Because I don't want to be made guilty, to feel guilty for how much I'm going to use. So I'm mm. like, people are like, hey, get in line. I'm like, no, so, my kids, my kids. And like, and I'm just using an excuse to go last so that when I take it and go, time to make a pool out of this, out of this plate. Because <laughs> oh, I no. want it on everything. Like, it is just coated like a, like a layer of slime. And I could not be happier. Did you so put this, gravy so, on your stuffing? Yo, <laughs> that's the best one! <laughs> Uh, we don't so, do gravy at uh, okay, so here's the thing. Um, I w- one area where MK and I are very compatible is she is like you, Patrick. She loves gravy. Mm-hmm. I do not care for it particularly. I am not a huge gravy person, and so MK gets dibs. She on, gets like, all of it. Of gra- she just gets to much. make a big bowl of gravy for that's the dream. <laughs> like if only that could be my oh life. My MK, we're gonna have a separate Thanksgiving. MK and I are gonna hang out. We're just gonna have. Uh, a giant bowl. All this is making me think, though, is that awful tweet that was going around a couple of days ago or yesterday. Uh, I don't want to. No, I, we do not need to. You get don't want me to say it. Tweet. My we gravy bowl is get... also my sick bowl. <laughs> <laughs> Look, <laughs> also, I, 
memory serves. I think people are also overreacting to that a bit because, Ooh. like, I hundred percent remember like being a kid and like needing to curl up with a bowl because like I could not be trusted to keep food down. And it would usually be a big like mixing bowl or something that when people Some- were not sick was pressed into service as other things. Uh-huh. The the uh-huh. I, I would say the only acceptable version of this is yes, the emergency, you need something. We do have in the house, because we have two young kids, a it's like the the, the the laundry room bucket like it's used to you know mm. uh, for it's used for dirty jobs like mostly involving like dirt and sometimes it involves puke that's that's the designated bucket the for thing that. the thing is though i i will say this i was usually i was never so sick that i couldn't make it to the bathroom was the thing and mm. like be sick there i couldn't like so when kids are young rare. enough sometimes they can't recognize like the, jessica now can get up but there are moments when she was like two years ago where yeah. she doesn't feel well, sits in bed, and your alternative is just you're gonna oh, spend yeah. 45 minutes. Absolutely not. No, absolutely not. <laughs> uh, so no, so but, but anyway, go back to Sorry, uh, back to gravy. <laughs> so where what I am what what I have a bottomless appetite for is cranberry sauce. Mm, wow, see, and, that's that's really low on I'm not big on the the Thanksgiving desserts like pumpkin stuff doesn't do anything for me so you're just are you putting the cranberry sauce on things as well on turkey on turkey oh, okay mm. all right okay because yeah because it it's it gives it a nice tang a little a little mm-hmm. zip and it uh you know if you're dealing with turkey breast meat you know always needs a little bit of that same thing as with the gravy right like turkey breast meat very hard to not make that dry as hell right yes and depending on what part of, you might have not gotten the moist part of the turkey by the time you go to get your food so like that yeah i'm 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 with you. So why turkey is the inferior bird? Did you make something else? Do we, we make a duck with? every year. Okay. Yeah. It's so Kato, good. I, <laughs> it's yeah, so I think this was our last turkey year for a while. <laughs> I think we I both mean, we both we both hit it where we're like, this was not worth what we <laughs> right. like what we gave to this bird. Time investment space. It, also, it does depend on volume of people that you're I heard feeding. Duck because is tricky though too, man. Tr- duck is tricky, but it. It's easier. It's tricky in that it's very precise. But if you hit that precise moment, everything's everything's good on the duck, right? Turkey's mm. like you're never gonna get the whole turkey perfect. Some part is right. gonna dry out. It's just too yeah. big. It's too, there's too much mass on that thing. Unless you like do individual pieces and bake them individually, which well, and is and a thing frequently I've seen. Like an oven's <laughs> being opened and closed, yeah. and people are putting you know like there's it's it's unless you're you know a putting duck, it out doing it by itself. You have to be careful and vigilant of a duck, but once the duck is good all of the duck is good and it was delicious duck meat um but it only really was enough meat for like three people which is Mm. more than enough for for our thanksgiving but uh i i think i think if you can get multiple small chickens you are better off usually than a giant duck um, I did that once. It was like Cornish hen situation mm-hmm. and everyone got whatever meat they wanted and it was delicious just because it's a lot easier to control temperature wise. Turkey is just like, uh, it's, I don't know. It's like 50% good. Yeah. <laughs> so I, so the thing is, so this year we get, we, I, I will, I will say this. We made a mistake. We had a couple good years. We were ordering from a place called commander's palace, uh, which is a restaurant. Uh, I think in like New Orleans that does a ton of business shipping Thanksgiving dinners uh, to, to people and, and and just meals to people all the time. Mm-hmm. And like that stuff was great. That rule. That was that was great. This year we 
got a smoked turkey from somewhere else. That was a terrible decision. It was like incredibly dry. Yeah, it was oh, it was no. not a it was not a good time. And uh, like and a sign of how alarmingly off this turkey was. Mina was furious at us every time we were eating it because I am pretty sure it didn't. It smelled less like people food and much more like her jerky treats. <laughs> oh, no, no, which she is like, you were which stealing is, her food. Yeah. She was like, what are you doing? Why are That's you eating this? Me. This is this is mine. This is not this is not person food. Oh my this God. is dog food. And she may not have been entirely inaccurate in that in that estimation because we're just like, you know, having said, I'm not usually that much of a gravy person. This this year I had to be gravy was just like, ah, <laughs> I need to rehydrate the bird. So there was uh, it was it was a bit of a a bit of a challenge. I, I think, you know, the issue was we had a number of years where we made a really great Thanksgiving spread. We did the full like just go berserk with Cook's Illustrated recipes and such. And like we nailed it. We met we we mastered all these dishes. We we had figured out how to do a, a really good turkey, and that was all great. And then you hit a point where it's like, this is just too much fucking work. <laughs> this is just too much. Like this, especially for two people. This is this is absurd right. to do for for a little uh like small Thanksgiving. So yeah. <laughs> so I I was thinking goose or duck. Uh mm-hmm. I also, because I'm very suggestible. This year, the NFL, all their Thanksgiving games throughout the weekend, they kept talking about John Madden, John Madden, Madden's legacy, John Madden's turduckins. No, and I didn't realize no, that no. The, the place <laughs> that did the turduckins for the broadcasts uh, with, with men, they apparently they shipped those like you can order, oh you can order the Madden six legged turduckin. And six part legged. of me is thinking part three birds. Yeah. Two legs piece, <laughs> get a turducken. And I was sort of thinking, I could go for that. We did a turducken once before. It was kind of cool. But also at the end of the weekend, MK was like, you know what? Next year, let's just do a beef wellington. Let's just, you know what? Maybe maybe enough with the poultry. You, uh, you're a fan of ham? I am, but my relationship with it has never fully recovered from... Uh, there was a Christmas with MK's dad. It was like shortly after like a big family divorce situation. And it was like just powerful divorced energy at this little <laughs> Christmas gathering. So he was like, I'm going to make a big, beautiful Christmas gathering. Well, you know what those need? A fancy ham, which <laughs> yeah. is true. Yeah, but it needs other things too. And he forgot all the other things. <laughs> he just made so a it was ham? a Christmas day. Di- it was a Christmas dinner <laughs> with like a like twelve pound ham. Oh my god! <laughs> and nothing else except the heaviest red wines you can possibly imagine. Oh, that is. And so, like, I think still to this day. Yeah. I'm like a little because it was good ham, yeah. But also, I've never felt this oppressed by yeah. a delicious thing. <laughs> oh wow! Just putting the divorce all over the whole evening. <laughs> it was. It, it was the it was strongest extreme, energy. <laughs> it, it was. It was an extreme. Uh, it, like it was an extreme moment in everyone's life. Let me. Let me. Let me just say that. But like the ham. Did you, did the ham like, got caught up in. Did you play it straight? Was it like, yeah, this is what dinner is. It's just me. <laughs> <laughs> or- 
Oh, you play it straight. Like there, there was no understanding this might not be the thing. Like there was like zero. Like play it straight implies that like there was an understanding that this might have been a misguided menu. That is not what no. was happening. Oh my god! This was this was more like pretty great ham, right? Please have some more. I love some. Would ham. you like? Uh, you want me to open up another bottle of Cabernet? <laughs> Pairs with this ham really well. Yeah, I mean, if you wanted a break from it, there were chocolates, <laughs> oh my God. Christmas chocolates. Uh. So it was, it was, it was very intense. Very good ham, uh, and it was it was all like very well intended. Yeah, but it was it was far too much, and so I have not been in the same same place with ham uh, since this Christmas, like ten years ago. What? <laughs> what do y'all do for vegetables? Well. I don't know. My, like, I think by this time of year, it's starting to get a little, a little tricky, mm-hmm. honestly, because uh, I do love, like, I like a good mashed potato. I love sweet potatoes. Um, I think roast, roasted or fried Brussels sprouts, always good. Yeah. Uh, with, with with Thanksgiving dinner. It is tricky this time of year, though, to get hold of, like, good leafy greens. Um, almost impossible yeah it's just not in season here in the northeast it's not no definitely the closest thing you're getting is 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 brussels sprouts and they're delicious i love brussels sprouts yeah i mean i i like them if i so i like them but i also i do need to just like sear the shit out of them like i want my they have to be they have to be yes slightly burnt and crispy yes with very minimal goo you have to right, like, suck all the moisture yes. out. <laughs> yes, that's the thing. There's the a trick, goo. The trick is uh, cast iron. You cut those shits in half mm-hmm. and put them face down on a cast iron uh, for like five minutes before you put it all in. So you, you kind of crisp the outside for a little bit. And then you're putting the whole, you know, just put the whole cast iron in, into the oven at like 450 Half an hour, you're done. Perfect, perfect crisp every time. Don't need to do That's anything else. Yeah. I just I sort of sear the shit out of them uh, on the stovetop. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like I I roast them and then I finish them with a sear. I do, uh, yeah, I do it, which I do also it works well. I start yeah. start with the sear and then roast them real real hot. But either way, we both get to the point where it's like that that liquid they've yielded up, yeah. the, the slightly <laughs> sogginess of the Brussels sprout. You got to that has Gone. to be dealt with. Gone. That has to go. <laughs> there's there's a, maybe a little pleasant pleasant mush near the center, but it's mostly yes. mostly crunch. <laughs> yes, that's this is this is the key. Yes. Uh, Patrick, do, do vegetables feature for for you, or is it all mashed potato? Like, it's, I mean, those are technically just, vegetables, but you know, yeah, that's yeah. When you said mashed potatoes, like, does that count? Because um, that that's about as far as I, I, I was thinking. We had two Thanksgivings, but different different family things we had to to be at, and neither corn. There was you know corn, something with corn in it, the vegetable technically, <laughs> uh, and that was pretty good. But that's beyond that. Um, no asparagus. I, I, I feel like asparagus I, is a big thing sometimes. In neither in neither one of these, wow, uh, no no green I, things. I, I eat so much green stuff. Otherwise, I got side salads right. with all my lunches and dinners. Like I'm fine. I can take a break for <laughs> two meals. Like I'm eating leafy greens or some sort of uh, thing. That's that's all right. And frankly, it's if it, if it can't exist with gravy on it, then I don't want it. So uh, I don't know if the Brussels sprouts would be good with the gravy. Mm. They would be. I think. 
I think they would. I mean, I, I can vouch that they're okay because, like, you know, the gravy gets all over the plate. And so everything goo. is blessed. So by you're the gravy. spending all this time taking the goo out of the Brussels sprout just so I can add my own goo. A better goo, it. though. A better, Frankly, a better, a better, better goo. goo. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, you know, we have. So today we do have another special episode. In a bit, you're going to hear me chat with uh, Fergus Urquhart, uh, studio head at Obsidian. This was a follow on conversation. Uh, subsequent to my chat with Josh Sawyer and Adam Brunecki and this interview, we're speaking more broadly about life at the studio and how obsidian and the industry have, have changed over the years. Uh, before we get to that though, since we did just have the, the long, the long holiday weekend, uh, I figured, you know, we could check in real quick on like, you know, games we've been playing, uh, you know, news that broke right as we went to went into the holidays or, Maybe any other uh, misguided holiday adventures we, we got up to. Uh, I wanted to play a, a bunch of Midnight Suns on my Steam Deck, but I think because I have early access to a press build, the cloud save didn't didn't uh. make the jump. And so I sat down where I had an hour and a half with one of my kids asleep. It's a Steam and the Deck other. game, too. And uh. They do not. It does. I will say I, I don't think I'm breaking any rules here but like in in the notes that 2k has passed along ahead of time they don't it is not a steam deck verified game it is not a platform that they are championing uh for uh for it to run properly i don't know but the gamepad controls are fine so that'll like that's usually where things break down i probably wouldn't run it on the steam deck what i would do is stream it from my pc sure to my steam deck but i would not try to like run it natively yeah yes yeah so i can't speak to that because i didn't want to start over after having played Six or seven hours, but um, uh, I did just before the holiday finish up um, Somerville, which is the new game from so the the studio Play Dead uh, Inside and Limbo uh, essentially split uh, a couple of years back, um, where there were sort of like two creative leads, um, uh, and one stayed behind at uh, Play Dead to continue working on something that hasn't been announced yet, um, and then the other game was a, a game called Somerville, um, which. If you've played Inside or Limbo, uh, you, you get strong vibes of that. It is a, you know, like a cinematic uh, puzzle platformer, um, fr- you know, where you run, you know, it's a, t- a 2D running from left to right or right to left. These, this game is a little, gives you a little more de- degree of, uh, of movement. But the setup for Somerville is, starts really promising. Uh, it's, it's a family that, uh, just like in the countryside outside of London, I believe, um, doesn't actually explicitly say, but I saw the double decker buses. So I assume, I assume that's what, what's going on. Uh, and, uh, they're, they have, it's a, uh, you know, mother, father, uh, small child, little boy and uh, a dog. And they're, they're sitting around, fall asleep in front of the TV, um, to be only to be woken up by some strange lights, which uh, trigger or signal an alien invasion. Um, and then the family attempts to escape uh, the inva- alien invasion out of the house. Um, <coughs> there is, uh, they, they kind of take cover in the basement. There's kind of an explosion. Some sort of person falls through. Um, the family ends up getting separated because they believe the father uh, to be dead as a result of the explosion. Uh, but the father awakes a little later and, like the, the creature or whatever reaches their hand out um, and sort of transfers sort of this magical power. Um, the magical power is sort of like your ability to manipulate this alien gravy, uh, this goo that sort of like <laughs> is around the environment that like solidifies, but that you can sort of erase and you can start to imagine how you would do stuff like that to, you know, move from one area to the next. I will say the best part of this game 
is the 15 minutes before the game starts properly, which wow. is the setup in the house um, with just the family doing innocuous things, the mm. beginning to the alien invasion, kind of getting a sense of the relationships between these characters. Like Limbo and Inside, there's no dialogue. Um, there is just uh, sort of not even just kind of characters gesturing uh, about sort of their emotions. And uh, like there's a sequence. It's a little awkward, but the the first uh, playable character you have is like this little toddler so you're just like dink, <laughs> dinking around. You've woken up while your parents are asleep and like time to get into some fucking trouble. Um, and like one of the things you can do is go into the kitchen and you pull out like the drawers so you can climb up to, to get something that you're not supposed to. And it's a sweet little moment because it's like I know the game is going to have some sort of scale soon, but it's a moment in which you're sort of using game mechanics to do sort of I get kind of banal things in a way that is is charming and interesting. Um, and that moment is over in a flash. Like it is 10 minutes before the family is separated. We have gone from a family in a impossible like situation to two minutes after the alien invasion happens. Well, the dad's got to get superpowers so they can, you know, erase the magic alien goo that's in front of them. And I just wish the game had spent a little more time in that moment, like being a little quieter, like because the the way it portrays the invasion is, is is like it's really ominous and spooky. Um, and I would have loved to have spent some more time being scared as the dad wandering around trying to figure that out. Um, but the game just immediately jumps to we want to give you a bunch of not a bunch of but a handful of mechanics to interact with so we can start throwing puzzles at you. Yeah. Uh, and this is this is alarming because everything I everything you're saying here sort of tracks with how I kind of reacted to just the trailers where I was like, yeah. man, that game looked really incredible. I don't know how I feel about what all this sci-fi like adventuring shit I see in the trailer because <laughs> like it, the stuff that grabbed me was sort of the quieter, more like stage setting or yes. or or uh, scene setting uh, c- the components of the of the game. Right. Like in a, in a t- you know, I, I had seen that original trailer, too, and I kind of thought that, well, maybe the, the, the pitch of this game is going to be a family trying to survive this alien invasion. And that, that it's very easy to imagine the puzzles and the drama that would come out of that and the way that the like the inside limbo style of of aesthetic would really lend itself to make that, uh, you know, like a pretty thrilling or potentially thrilling adventure. Um, but it just immediately wants to do this like higher level sci-fi stuff. And then it's, it would really undercuts it is that just the puzzles are not very fun or interesting. The environment, which gives you a little more freedom of movement, um, just doesn't signpost very well what you're supposed to do or what you can interact with. And the way that the actual interaction like works is broadly with the way the game works is you have analog. There are triggers that like turn your hand blue and it turns your hand red and like the blue makes the goo go away so you can like progress forward. The red kind of snaps it back to a solid state and you can use that to kind of get around. The other is you're pressing A and that like interacts with objects. And then what you end up doing is wobbling the analog stick in weird directions to see if it does anything. Um, and it just doesn't feel good. There were frequently times where I was consulting walkthroughs because I'm looking at a scene and I'm just I just cannot for the life of me decipher what they want me to do. I, the game really restricts your, your movement. So it's like, I'm in a scene. I am in a location. There's only a handful of things I can look at, and I still quite, can't quite put together what exactly the game wants me to interact with to trigger the movement of a bust so that I can crawl under it or whatever it might be. And so, 
you know, it lost me on the story. It lost me on the like interactions. And once you've sort of lost those, these are like the key components of what a limbo <laughs> slash inside sort of game pitches. Yeah. Um, and it, it only got, I mean, this game also, it just, I don't want to spoil how it ends in case folks get around to it. And it is pretty short. Like I finished it in, you know, four hours. Um, and, and I think if you didn't get stuck, you could do it, um, even, even shorter than that. Uh, but it's not great when you get to what you discover is the end of the game and trigger a bad ending by accident because you didn't know what you were interacting with. And that's precisely what happens at the end of some like a very high risk in the style of game, too, because like they're all about, ha you didn't have context for this. Now, did you? Which, yeah. by the way, like this is the problem is I know everyone like I know people love the turn and inside and like the denouement mm-hmm. of that. But like even by the end of Limbo, I was starting to be like, I think I've seen enough of this type of game and inside mm-hmm. didn't really solve that for me in in a lot of ways like it just the the just this style of game i think started to they're like it's lo- it, it is long on style but i've always been a little bit less convinced of how much fun i actually was having playing it uh in between the big set pieces yes and then they, you know they, they don't feature any combat so it's all it's all you know uh incumbent on the puzzles being Interesting, um, and especially in this one, Somerville, where I, I don't think that works out um, particularly well. I don't think the puzzles are particularly interesting to, to interact with. And then just having, again, the, the end of the game, like the inside-esque moment of like, here's here's the climax of, of what's going on here for me to trigger like a hyper-depressing ending that did not feel in line with what my character was arcing towards. But I pressed the – essentially the end – you can press the buttons in an order because you're not quite sure what to do and you can do it in the wrong order. And if you do it in the wrong order, you get a bad ending. And yes, you can cycle back to the previous chapter and you could look up what you're supposed to do so that you don't do that again. But I didn't want to. I was like, so like, I felt like I was dragging myself to the finish line to begin with. Mm. Like the game, the way it ended was like, left such a sour taste in my mouth that I wasn't interested in achieving. I was like, no, the bad ending was that I, I don't think this game worked particularly well and I will... I'll just stick with that bad ending. Thank you very, thank you very much. Um, so yeah, I re- probably the biggest disappointment of the year for me because I, uh, uh, like I love these games. Um, like adored both Limbo and uh, and Inside, um, and don't really tire of them, and, and particularly like the fact that they don't try to shoehorn combat uh, in, into it, and that they just sort of stick to sort of the environmental puzzles, even when it feels like. They're definitely shoehorning. Well, they're not shoehorning combat, but they're shoehorning in puzzles for the sake of the players need things to do from scene to scene, especially because they are choosing to not do traditional cutscenes, not have dialogue. And like they're essentially stripping away all the other things you would do to fill the time for the player to engage them. Um, and so I, I certainly understand how that could become tiresome uh, over time. And uh, yeah, this one collapsed pretty quickly for me. And I just made it to the end purely out of hoping that there would be something uh, at the end that would kind of redeem it. It's got some cool spectacles or certainly some really cool scenes to watch. Um, but uh, broadly, uh, it did not work for me at all and and was a huge bummer, which sucks. It is a bummer. Mm. Uh, so I spent a lot of my break um, continuing to play Midnight Suns, uh, which is, I think we alluded to this uh, the last time we talked about it, like, oh, this is a surprisingly narrative heavy game. I would continue to evaluate my estimation of how narrative heavy this game is upwards 
and really? in terms of its emphasis on narrative versus like going on missions and doing shit. Interesting. Uh, which I'm not sure is a bad thing. I'm like, I'm, I'm really like, it's a very long game. My review, I think is 100% going to be one of those. This is where I'm at with the game right now. I've not seen the end and I certainly don't know what alternate play playthroughs would be, but I can already sort of see that one of the things I'm really going to wrestle with in the review is, you know, this is the thing where I can break it down and, and see a lot of issues with various constituent parts of it. But at the same time, I kind of dig the overall, like, what does it mean to spend an hour with Midnight Suns? And usually mm-hmm. it's like, you know, okay, Marvel show in, yeah. in a lot of ways. And <laughs> what and again, do you, are you far enough along? Because I think I certainly got the impression from our interview with Jake Solomon that like that studio is not done with XCOM and that. Like Jake sort of gave away the game when he said, uh, had Marvel not called, Marvel explicitly called the studio to ask if they wanted to make a Marvel tactics game. They were absolutely basically just going to, I think he said, we'd probably be talking about XCOM 4 right now because we would have made two of those yeah. in the time it took them to make Midnight <laughs> Suns. It's hard not to look at, and maybe we should talk about this. You can tell me you want to talk about this later in the week when you've kind of like laid out your thoughts, but w- figuring that the most likely scenario is that they work on XCOM 3 after this. There's almost no chance they would ditch all the work and institutional knowledge they've built out, understanding how to craft a story and having this much narrative into a, into a sort of a tactics game. Obviously, XCOM would be a very different sort of beast, but what do you make of what that studio would do next based on what you've played at Midnight Suns and a hypothetical XCOM 3 that, like, upped the story oh gosh i have i have no idea because the the thing is i think that the ways this is doing narrative are very antithetical to the way xcom campaigns are structured and here's the thing i don't think making an xcom campaign more linear and having giving it more set pieces is the answer to making an xcom campaign better like i think Mm -hmm. a a huge issue with xcom 2 is how much of a fault you had to like you had to go through the same gates in the story again and again. And so you're just going to, you know, you're going to see this mission three, four times uh, on different, on different playthroughs. And that gives the campaign a bit of a rote feeling in a way that like, Oh, GX come and itself never, never have. So I, I suspect it would probably be a mistake for the game to lean too far in that, in that direction. But I do think it is building on uh, some of the, the 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 funny thing is I think some of the humor and character work actually was already done in um, God the XCOM two like not like mini spinoff the the oh the the cops one yeah Kamir Squad yeah. yes right you can sort of see like connective tissue between that and Midnight Suns really really clearly. Uh, I think there's there's definitely, you know, in, in any studio like this, there's there's people who do have a, a real bent for narrative design in the background of a a nonlinear story like this. I suspect we'd see some of this crop back up in in an XCOM three. That's true. But I also kind of suspect. My guess is they would love to be moving to a model where they have a, a team that's able to do projects that are more in this in this in this vein as well. Right, that maybe you become a two-team studio where you could you could do an XCOM and a Midnight Suns, and if this game is enough of a hit, you don't have to pick between the two. 
Yeah. So like, and, and from, from everything I've heard uh, from like people are familiar with Firaxis and such, like there are people at the studio who, who have always have had bit a bit more of a yen to make games. They're a bit more narrative, a bit like a bit more like uh, what tends to get a lot of attention in the mainstream. And then there's always been a faction in the studio. that has been like, eh, we like making open-ended like sandbox strategy games. And so I think like, you know, I it's not hard to imagine a, a marriage between the two in which, you know, if you are not a player that is ascribing narrative and character weight to your the, the your soldiers in XCOM, which I am not. They are just stats on a, on a sheet to me. I'm sad because I lost the cool sniper that I liked, <laughs> but I'm not necessarily sad because sergeant butterworth like like went went down uh in the mission and i think there is probably a world where and maybe it's closer to a chimera squad but like how, how do you keep the procedural like anyone could die at any moment elements but also give some emotional gravity to the characters that are the result of like written narrative that can be applied to the characters so um well, interesting. i'm curious to see where you where you end up landing on, on midnight suns i guess we can we can unpack that more um, yeah on friday's show um, the other thing I've been playing a bit of is, uh, WRC generations, uh, which is the last, uh, so it's, it's a, it's a world rally championship game and mm. it is the last of the WRC games that's going to be made by the studio KT racing who've, who've had the license for, for a number of years. And next year it's going to be, I think, I think this starts next year's. I know the Codemasters has the license. They're going to be making the official uh, WRC games moving forward. Crucially, WRC is a category of racing that falls under the FIA, which is the same body that governs F1. Mm. So Codemasters already has that track record with the F1 license over the last like 12 years. And now they're getting the WRC license, which I'm a little bit, you know, we we talked about this a, a little bit before, you know, in the wake of, um, project cars sort of being tossed in the bin. And I think one of the things that is running through back of my back of my mind as I play WRC generations is that and I, and I don't know the series too well. I only played a bit of WRC nine, I want to say, which is the previous one, but it doesn't feel like a Codemasters game. And at this point, given how that model seemed like those games have sort of developed a feel. Now they all feel a bit EA sportsy as well. There's almost something to be said for a game that does not feel like it is operating from the sports game hymnal that like 2K and EA like tend tend to operate from. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's one element element of it. I think the other thing is just it's a it's a small thing, but like the game looks and feels different than Codemasters games. Like just just the way they go about building these things out and the, their approach to modeling the cars and track surfaces, like everything feels a bit a bit off, which makes sense. These things are all subjective, right? There is no there is no like <laughs> one studio puts in the good real graphics and the other <laughs> does the knockoff graphic like it's it's all subjective how you how you build this stuff out. But w, uh, WRC has a distinct feel from what I associate with with Codemasters games. And I think maybe part of it is maybe this is mostly the, the subject matter, uh, but these, this game feels so interested in the countryside 
as opposed to the it, like as opposed to the course, if that makes sense, like you can mm-hmm. still go in car view and all that and like get really into it. But I've, the, the game feels really set up to always like put you in mind of the fact that like what makes rally racing different is it's this is it's this motorsports discipline where they are just launching uh, basically hatchbacks down single lane country roads, typically in like densely mountainous or forested countryside and they're long courses they're they're point-to-point races they're very long uh a bit like you know tour de france style and the point there is it's not like you're doing lap after lap at the at the same you see the same corner again and again it's that you're going to be flying down the road for like 30 kilometers and you're going to encounter so many weird little turns and kinks you will not be able to rem- memorize the course very effectively. You remember parts of it, but like you're you're never going to have that like this is turn one, this is turn two. You set yourself up for it's always going to be a bit more like seat of your pants, and it necessitates a completely different approach to these sort of track racers. But the the way WRC kind of gets at this is you're always sort of put in mind of just where you are in the countryside the the camera tends to be really high up following the car so that you can catch like the whole sweep of the mountain valley you're driving around you can see the the town that you drove through yesterday as part of a different uh stage of the rally and it all ends up feeling a bit more i don't know i, I guess in a weird way wrc i think in some ways feels like what the hunter is to FPS games, right? Where it's like similar mechanics, but it's in- entirely in the service of a different experience, a different mm. relationship uh, with with the map, uh, with with what you're doing. And WRC gets gets that across really well. I've been I've been really digging my time with it. This, despite the fact that it is such a different style of racing, I am basically completely unprepared for it. Like. <laughs> These cars are going over gravel, gravel, mud, snow, ice. Uh, the track surface is really bad. And crucially, because it's a single file road, there's no like tarmac that if you, oh, you run wide, you just go off the course, you come back over the rumble strip, you're fine. If like you run wide, usually that means you run off a cliff or into like a thick <laughs> tree uh, at, at high speed. So like there's a much greater sense of real danger and risk like this like this is a risk reward game in a way that other racing games are not and that comes with the territory of rally racing but like if you're too conservative if you're like i need to drive safely because like any mistake could could cost me then you just will not be fast enough to be competitive but if you overcook it if you push just a little bit too far it's not like oops i screwed up that compromised my lap i'm gonna lose like three tenths or a second on this lap it's no, I'm going to go barreling into a tree and that's going to wreck my car uh, and force a force a reset or something. And you, that is a really bracing way to race. Sorry. Have you, have you wrecked that? Have you wrecked a car? Can you fold a car around a tree or is oh, this yeah. like, OK, well, because, you know, sometimes these racing games don't like crumple things or it's like, well, oh, so you they get do, reset or I don't know. 
so they do have like so this is a difficult difficulty settings thing mm. there's a couple options they give you uh if you play with max realism then yeah like you can absolutely destroy that car and like well you're done you <laughs> can't it. compete in this rally you're you're Damn. done your car is in pieces okay. yeah uh the thing they don't do is they don't have like flashbacks the way like forza and codemasters games do where it's like oh i made a mistake time to rewind the clock to before i made the mistake and now i can correct it mm. instead they will let you restart the stage <laughs> which is sometimes okay uh-huh. if you're on a stage that's only like you know five six kilometers that's not too long Uh but they have special stages that can be like 50 kilometers long (laughs) you're talking like you are racing on a single stage no saves for like 40 minutes jesus uh because it's like you know 50 some kilometers of dense twisting Mm -hmm. like treacherous roads by the way, that is awesome. Like, it's like you feel so alive when you're like, I have been doing this for 25 minutes. I have not blinked in, in like yeah. 10 minutes. Yeah. And now I'm just like, I, I am living corner to corner. But the way they mostly like the way the game punishes you, it's not, it's not that punitive, but if you go fully off or you, or you like wrap yourself around a tree, you can tap like the Y button and it will reset you to the track. But, it will give you a time penalty for doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, not too bad. Like it's like you lose five seconds, which is frequently better than if you were trying to like somehow drive your car off being wrapped around a tree. Right. But the problem is that the damage accumulates, and so oh. like once you like you know once you really ding the suspension bumper against a tree or a stone or something like that. Car's not going to drive straight after that. It's going to have a bias mechanically mm-hmm. in in how it in how it goes around the rest of of the rally, and so you're going to be sitting there now trying to remember like, oh, that's right, this car doesn't turn right well anymore, but it really <laughs> turns left well. Yeah. So I have to adopt adapt that into right. my driving style. Um, there are stages where you can repair the car, but you don't, like you only get 45 minutes of repair time, mm-hmm. so it's sort of a it's a bit like a motorsports manager. Like, how do you want to assign crew hours to fixing the car? Right. But yeah, it's, you know, it, it's, it's a really cool game. It's, um, but also say it's like a really generous game. Like these maps are huge. There are so, there, there is so much, like there's so many rally courses in this game mm. and there are so many cars, both like the current models, the historic models, uh, et cetera, that it just feels, it, you know, it, it's like not necessarily one of those like forever games. It doesn't need to be, but it does feel like there's so much here to keep it fresh and so many different takes on the core like rally game experience uh, that I really come away like admiring it, especially in light of stuff like the F1 games struggle to make compelling offerings on the historic racing front or like this year they had the terrible like we introduced supercars except the handling model like the supercar none of it just feels good the supercars don't feel good in in this game wrc actually seems to have struck a really good balance between modeling the highest tier of the sport but then also having a lot of cool ways to spotlight historic racing and like lower tiers uh so really digging it uh it's been a a a really nice change of pace uh from from other racing stuff i've been doing this year excellent 
uh, elsewhere, the the one kind of major piece of uh, news, which uh, is kind of just like following the the ongoing Activision, uh, Microsoft trying to try, trying to acquire Activision Blizzard. Uh, Politico reported uh, over the holiday. Uh, the the headline is uh, Fed's likely to challenge Microsoft sixty nine billion dollar. Activision takeover, to quote from the piece, uh, the FTC is likely to file uh, an antitrust lawsuit to block Microsoft's $69 billion takeover video game giant Activision Blizzard, maker of the hit games Call of Duty and Candy Crush, according to three people with knowledge of the matter. A lawsuit would be the FTC's biggest move yet under Chair Lena Khan uh, to reign in the power of the world's uh, largest technology companies. It would also be a major black mark for Microsoft, which has positioned itself as a white knight of sorts on antitrust issues in the tech sector after going through its own grueling regulatory antitrust battles around the world uh, more than two decades ago. A lawsuit challenging the deal is not guaranteed, and the FTC's four uh, commissioners have yet to vote out a complaint or meet with lawyers for the companies, two of the people said. Uh, however, the FTC uh, staff reviewing the deal are skeptical of the gaming company's arguments. Uh, and then uh, I should note, because this came out this morning as we were recording, um, there, uh, 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 Reuters is reporting uh, that uh, Microsoft is likely to offer a formal 10-year licensing deal on Call of Duty to act uh, to Sony, which has been one of the main sticking points mm-hmm. as it this this deal went through the, uh, the, the grind, you know, getting ground through over the regulatory uh, framework over in in Europe um uh but because that has been a one of the big sticking points has been well, at least from Sony's perspective like the the nature of Call of Duty and what would happen with that franchise because they make so much from the microtransactions but the FTC you know we 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 were count, we were talking about this when this deal was announced that it was going to be an interesting test of Lena Khan and the Biden administration's uh posture at least that they were going to be more aggressive when it came to blocking large deals the question was did this one did microsoft a a company sort of firmly in third place despite being a major player in video games does this deal constitute something that would vault them into such a degree that the 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 government should put their finger on the scale in terms of whether or not it should happen yeah this is this is in a really interesting place right now for for one thing uh you know, the FTC, I think it would still be you be steering into a lot of headwinds against this, because obviously the I, I think in these cases, it would still end up going to the federal judiciary, which is kind of shot through uh, with conservative judges and people who are basically like, uh, you know, Robert Bork disciples who have adopted mm-hmm. the sort of like threadbare and somewhat moth eaten consumer welfare uh, standard as as a way of evaluating these things but i i do think it's been you know we allude to it often enough patrick i think because this is touched on stuff that you and i have both dealt with but like the disastrous like dish network direct tv thing uh mm-hmm. that judges signed off on and then overnight immediately like we're, we're kind of clowned on uh by by direct tv in in that whole process uh so i think there's been a like a greater awareness of the fact that like corporate lawyers will just straight up mislead and lie. The AT&T about, time Warner, yeah. right? Like there's been a lot of uh, good reporting recently about what a disaster that, that merger was. There is a long history of, uh, of, of horrible mergers not working out for consumers in any meaningful way and just lining 
you know, lining the wallets of of the people who are were pushing for the, the merger in the first well, place. Well, and the things the judges were told to anticipate would be like what the world after the merger would look like just don't come to pass. Uh, and the enforcement but, mechanisms after the fact are non-existent. just not uh, non-existent or in effect like, oh, you got a fine. Like yeah. they don't they don't give a shit. The other but the other thing that I, I do wonder about, because, you know, you, you pointed out, is this is this merger that egregious? And compared to a lot of stuff that's been greenlit, I don't know. But what's funny is in some ways I do feel the well's been poisoned by so many bad right. mergers sailing through that now this one is coming in for, yeah, deserves scrutiny. But also, you know, I'm, I think about this story in relation to the Ticketmaster Live Nation uh, thing that blew up mm-hmm. last week with the, you know, centering on Taylor Swift tour tickets. Mm. But it really turned into a, a broader discussion of like, wait, so these companies get how big a cut from all these like from these ticket sales, especially because and, and own how much of the stack, right? They don't now they don't just sell the tickets, they own the venues. Yes. And yeah. uh, so like they they you know had of exclusive agreements with like so artists don't even have and are taking merch know, sales now too. And this is right. this comes after go go, re- go research the uh Pearl Jam's attempt to take down Ticketmaster in, in the nineties and see how that went for them. Well and we had like <laughs> a summer full of artists cutting tours short or canceling tours because and like pretty decently sized acts basically saying like uh turns out the economics of this are not are not viable which doubly sucks because streaming already put a, like took a hammer to recording artists mm-hmm. and then the argument was well the tour is really where recording artists now are going to be making their bank you're and, on streaming for awareness rob <laughs> yeah and then well here come here comes ticketmaster doubling the price of your tickets through fees and then taking a cut of the merch sales uh, that were supposed to be like, you know, largely going to the acts themselves. And so like you, you see, you see the FTC telegraphing a move like this one in a context of it is starting to filter out into public awareness, the degree to which like mergers like this anti-competitive mergers make life shitty in ways you can increasingly identify and quantify. Right. Where Yeah. Where you're, you know, it may be, it may very well be the case that yes, Ticketmaster is a monopoly and that actually Taylor Swift, not touring in four years and then specifically doing a tour, like not, you know, quote post COVID people know what I mean by that. People, people are doing more things. Mm-hmm. And like, it may just be that like, there are like 20 million people trying to buy tickets and there were not 20 million tickets and even Ticketmaster buckled under the weight weight of that. But then it, it just it makes it so clear that there are no other alternatives. And yeah. the fact that there are no are alternatives, even if Ticketmaster did the best they possibly could in an impossible situation, it exposes so greatly the lie that has been sold as all of these companies have merged upon merged upon merged and just amassed themselves just a miserable power that – when they that that's the thing that's the that's the problem with the merge is when you come on that big when you do fail there's only one place to point the finger um and so that's why you know ticketmaster uh uh became such a a, a hot point so it, you know it may be the case that the ftc leaking this is just part of a broader pr campaign to essentially like just don't even propose these do you want to go do you want to do this like do you want to get dragged you're like, yeah, you might get that thing across the finish line, but let's say Microsoft doesn't. Um, like somehow this all gets blown up and doesn't actually happen. They've also now the opportunity cost of having spent two years not acquiring 
other, you know, you know, they could have acquired Bungie or something. You know what I mean? Like there were other things they could have been doing in which they've probably been spending time planning for how they would integrate these studios into their franchises into the next five, 10 years of development. And that goes away. I mean, you know, Microsoft software is already in a, in a pretty touch and go place. Uh, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a lot that can kind of buckle under that, even if Call of Duty doesn't become an Xbox exclusive as a result of it. Yeah, I think that's and I think that's a huge uh, a good way of looking at this is there there's always the element in which this is strictly about this one merger, but there's also a broader signaling that's been accompanying a lot of this stuff, which is about trying to move the regulatory environment in a different direction of sort of reframing how these things are evaluated and setting setting some boundaries on what what companies like should be considering uh and and what probably what might want to be seen as more trouble than it is worth but uh yeah it's like everything from it's either the ua the u u uh you know for essentially forcing apple to switch to usbc going forward which i understand the argument that putting technology decisions in the hands of regulators is probably maybe not you know i could see how that could be an issue long term but I think this is all like the various signals to giant companies that like like there are eye, there are at least eyes watching and like you are going to get the screws twisted on you to some degree and you're going to find it annoying. Um, and that's all good. Even yeah. if I even if I broadly think the Activision deal is probably fine, like I, I don't think it changes the market so significantly. And I think Sony is using a lot of really bad faith arguments to to, to explain their position, even if they're doing the best thing for them as a company uh, to, to kind of like guarantee that those microtransactions from call of duty remain part of their balance sheet for for the next decade uh so i can think that sony's acting in bad faith but also think it's good broadly that microsoft has to eat a little pain um along the way but i guess now i i was pretty we we all started when we wrote that original like kind of back and forth article about this rob i I don't think there was a a really a world where we were seriously entertaining that the deal falls through is like oh it's going to be kind of painful take a little longer but you know it it should probably happen despite the FTC signaling they want to be more aggressive but i don't know i hope i, I don't know if it's quite a coin flip but it's i'm closer to not being surprised if this all fell apart in in a, in, a, in a couple of months uh I'll be, I'll be curious to see where it lands sam i think the other weird dynamic of this is i i do think there's a very good chance that microsoft would end up being a more responsible corporate manager of mm-hmm. Activision's operations than Activision. Mm-hmm. Like you couldn't get worse than no. the stories that emerged from like the Kodak regime, the leadership click there and at Blizzard. Uh, right, we're just going to hand that all back over to <laughs> that that like legion of dipshits that's on their board. Like go go read about all the people that uh are, are sitting on there. It, it's just, it's just a a series of supervillains from the Bush administration running Activision <laughs> Blizzard. Yeah, and and so I think this this is the weird thing. Is like it may it may well also be it may be good <laughs> if this is like hitting regulatory hurdles, maybe even get sort of shot down over over those issues. But I also do suspect that there would be a lot of things that would at least be mitigated somewhat by mm-hmm. the fact that what passes for adults would now be in charge uh, as opposed to like the, the toxic um, the, the toxic club of like sycophants uh, the, the sort of surrounds uh, Kodak and his people. And so I think that's, yeah. that's another dynamic in, in mind with this. Uh, but but yeah, we will we will you know keep tabs on that story as it develops. Um, 
I guess, you know, <laughs> this is not maybe the site the site I would have wanted uh, for the talk with uh, Fergus Urquhart, but uh, oh, no. Oh, we... No. <laughs> <laughs> what got him? I said, oh, oh no, right, we're going to Obsidian. Yeah, I mean, right? well, like, I think what I would say is this is one of the things we talked a lot about, uh, Fergus and I. We, we mm. discussed a great deal about... Not just the not just the acquisition by Microsoft, but also one of the things this interview sort of centers on is the fact that like this studio has gone through multiple stages of life within the industry. And I think one of the first things we lead off with is Obsidian started life as a type and category of studio that most of them didn't survive the 2000s like they're either acquired or shut down or or went under whatever but like there are not many that 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 came that came through uh multiple shifts in like what the landscape looked like the the move from retail to digital uh the the shift in like budgets and what was expected from a major release the resource required and Obsidian's been through a lot of that, and then now most recently has also undergone the change of becoming a Microsoft studio. So this is one of the things we talked a lot about is just the what it was like to go through those changes in business environment and how that affects or doesn't affect uh, creative decisions and, and what becomes a possibility uh, at a studio like Obsidian. So uh after after the break you're going to hear me talking to Fergus Urquhart uh who is once again the studio head at Obsidian and then after that discussion we will come back uh with a little dip into the question bucket so stick around Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And we're back with Fergus Urquhart, uh, CEO of Obsidian Entertainment. Uh, Fergus, welcome to the show. And I'm really curious, uh, before we start recording here, you mentioned that you'd forgotten that apparently a bunch of your offices are under construction uh, here. At least the, the bathrooms are being redone. And I'm curious, uh, you know, when I hear that, I'm like, ah, there's that there's that Microsoft money being put to, put to use. Uh, but, but, but I am curious is like... Is it a sign of like expansion? Is it a time to sort of just uh, refresh the place? Uh, t- tell me about tell me about your remodeling plans. <laughs> yeah, so the remodeling. Um, so we've been in this building now since two thousand nine, uh, which is pretty funny when we think about that because it's now. So we'll be here. Uh, actually, sorry, two thousand eight. So we will have been here for fourteen years um, in like a month. Um, which, when I think about it, sometimes it means that some of the people that now work for us. 
uh, were like in elementary school when we moved into the building. But so the so the Irvine company, who is our, our landlord, hasn't hasn't redone the bathrooms since we moved in. So they look very like sort of Miami Vice level, sort of like granite and stuff like that. So yeah. so that's going on. And then on top of it, um, we because uh, we've been growing a bit as a studio, and so we acquired another another suite on our floor. And also we had had like um, a mocap studio when we first moved in, we had a mocap studio. And so we, we hadn't really used it as a mocap studio for a while. So we're taking that new suite, which is like next to the, the mocap studio um, and building all of that out as offices um, uh, for, for everybody, everybody to come in. Yeah, like I'm a little bit morbidly curious about this stuff because uh, uh -huh. I'm about to like I've been doing all my work in my living room effectively since the mm -hmm. pandemic started. And so like I'm having an office put in uh, later this year. And so I'm going to be doing the thing where, you know, my life is going to be a chaotic mess for uh, a few weeks. But at the end of it, hopefully I will no longer have an office chair as like the centerpiece to our to our family life, uh, right, as right. it were. Um, so one of the things I'm, I'm curious about, I talked to, uh, you know, Josh and Adam the, the other day, uh, or about a week prior to this, as, as far as our listeners are, are hearing all this, but, uh, you know, one of the things that I was curious about is, and especially to get your perspective on is, you know, your career bridges a lot of eras in like being a third party studio, being a third party yeah. developer, yeah. Uh, the entire model of how you pitch games for development, get financing, mm -hmm. et cetera. And I'm like really interested in just hearing how the environment both like financially and creatively has evolved in that time. Like what, like what is, what has changed about doing the job for you uh, today as opposed to, you know, years ago? Yeah. So, so yeah, for us in a lot of ways, and I guess myself is it's been this almost like a first a full, a full circle thing from the standpoint of early on in my career, I was first party. In essence, I worked for a publisher. I guess that that's not a call first party, but I was an internal running internal development. Um, and we were actually worked, we worked with external developers. So we were actually managing external developers. And then when we started Obsidian, you know, then we were independent until, um, you know, my, we acquired by Microsoft. So I need, so as it relates to my job, um, you know, there's parts of it that are different and there's parts of it that are not. Um, yeah, so I don't have to get on airplanes uh, and go and ask for money, uh, which was a big was a big part of my job uh, and, and a challenging part. It was like in a stressful one. And, you know, that's what I sound like the scary yeah. part of like, yeah, I mean, you know, we were talking. It was like when we were talking to Josh, like the you know, the 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 roads are littered with the bodies of studios that were third party mm -hmm. developers who like eventually the work just wasn't there or yeah. the 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 publishers were just not buying uh, mm -hmm. what they wanted to sell or what they were capable of building uh, at a certain point. And like there was, there was a period where it seemed like, you know, it, maybe the financial crisis accelerated this, but it, it certainly felt like in the mid 2000s, like there was just a culling of, of the industry. Uh, and that always struck me as both a terrifying thing to go through mm -hmm. and also a thing where, it it just does not seem like it could have been very fun to run a studio at that point and sort of have to bet the company project to project. And also, not you know, not just that, but like staking it on in a lot of ways on sales pitches to mm -hmm. uh, like partners. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think I was lucky is probably the wrong way to say it. But I, I, in some ways, I think we are a bit lucky or different in that we had a thing that we did. We made RPGs. Right. And we had uh, a pedigree that we 
goes back years and years. And I think that always sort of helped us in the pitches um, because we weren't a developer that was just looking for the latest, uh, you know, port or conversion or because I think that's also what hurt a lot of people, like a lot of a lot of studios for a while, like they kind of lived off of doing conversions. That's like a whole different. That's just that's just outsourcing now. It's not like studios as many studios are built upon that as what they do. Uh, and so I think, you know, so for us, it was sort of like people or in publishers were often looking for role-playing games. And so a lot of it was just staying top of mind with them and, and talking to them and, every, you know, whether it's Dice or E3 or just going and traveling, it's just constantly kind of talking to them and also being very open. I guess we were always very open about like, hey, here's some great ideas that we have, but we always like, so what is it that you want to make? And so a lot, it was interesting sometimes, a lot of the pitches were we would often have a pitch of what we wanted to do. Um, and it was really just to get into the door because then the publisher said, oh, that's really cool. But, you know, have you ever thought, you know, about doing a, I'm not going to come up with a stupid analogy, but some, you know, right. some like, I don't know, a coffee cup RPG or whatever it is. Right. And, uh, and so I think that helped us kind of smooth that out. Um, often how I would say it is like, you know, we probably, we did far fewer pitches than a lot of developers. And then every, but the pitches that we do were more successful because they were very focused on like, we were, the, we were an RPG studio. If we wanted an RPG, you talk to us. What do you make of, because I always sort of assumed that it was, it was partly driven by some of the dynamics of the industry uh, environment that you were operating in. But, you know, on the one hand, I, I would always say, and maybe this is, you know, I don't love the way we put this, but like, I would always say that Obsidian has had, uh, and particularly never like you know people who've come through there over time like have cult followings mm -hmm. um and just a a really devoted fan base which i think is sort of unusual it's, it's why obsidian has sort of remained a notable name for, for years and years but i would say associated with that there's often also been a reputation of like you know it's classic obsidian game right it's kind of kind of janky or or you know they weren't able to finish it it's it's busted in all these ways but uh, you know, with with mods or something, can you know you, you now you can really play it as it's it's meant to be played. I'm I'm curious how you what you make of that reputation, uh, right? Like you know, uh, do you, do you think it's fair? Uh, do you think it's it's misunderstood uh, a little bit? I'm I'm curious how you evaluate uh, the way that people talk about Obsidian, uh, both as like fans and observers of the industry. So for me, I, I, you know. I'm kind of like a kind of a perfectionist, right? And, mm -hmm. and you know, and from being a creator and um, being also that person that's sort of like the business and, you know, the, the game and the game making side of it. So, I mean, first off, so, so a lot of it was just, I mean, almost tying into what you asked before was our reputation was all, a, was tied into like, would people want to work for, not just people would want to, you know, buy our games or believe in us as if people would actually give us business and let us make games for them. And so it was always very important. And it was, it was always this challenge of like, how do you take the, the, the money that you're being given? Because it was always a negotiation, right? You know, yeah. and it's, it's like, uh, you know, because often when we were talking to people, like the, the, the money that they had available was not necessarily attached to like the thing that everybody wanted. And so that was, and so, so that was often pushing it. Like we, we, everybody almost had bigger, uh, I guess, bigger eyes than their stomach or, you know what I mean about mm -hmm. like, we want to go create this thing, but the reality is we only have $10 million, right. Or, or whatever it is. 
Um, and I think that often was the struggle of like, how do we then go make this awesome thing that can do all this stuff and puts people in a world and, and has great characters and all these conversations and VO and scripting and companions and all that and give them everything that we want to give them, um, but then also get it in a box that doesn't have a lot of bugs, right? And and so it was it was always this thing of like, it's it's kind of like writing this, 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 I don't know, this line of like, well, we could pull back and say, well, we'll do one less companion, we'll do one less region, we'll do one less and one less, one less. So we'll give you 10 hours, you know, and this is not exactly the conversation, yeah. but it's kind of the concept. And so I don't know, I think I, I, it was it was for us, it was always us just pushing. Um, yeah, it was just always basically always pushing, like, how can we get all of this in here? And we had to learn over time that it really was important that we had to like, okay, but the bugs matter and our reputation matters. And yeah, and it sucks for people to play, you know, 30 hours into a game and then it crashes and then it crashes again. And, you know, and, you know, it was, it was probably around, um, particularly around Fallout New Vegas, when Fallout New Vegas came out that we just said, look, like we just need to make way more of an effort here. Right. And, um, you know, we changed our, like, you know, how we track bugs, how we do this. And, and I think we've done a pretty good job. Um, but as you're bringing it up, it still is that reputation, you know, and, um, and I think it's going to be with us, you know, maybe forever. Um, and the, more of the way I look at it is that it just always needs to be what we're thinking about, right? It matters, right? You know, like the, some of the first conversations we have on a game now is like, well, we got to test it right. You know, one of the big tech, technology things we're doing right now is how to basically have when people are playing the game externally, that it's delivering crash reports into the cloud and that we have easy access to that. <laughs> so right. it is it is a fundamental thing that we think about. And, and hopefully, and hopefully, it's not just to change people's opinions because we also know that's attached to like then the games are just funner to play if we're doing a better job. Well, New Vegas is interesting because I remember there were all sorts of like conspiracy theories were generated out of that where people were like, there were camps of people who were like, you know, Bethesda actually tanked that uh, for them because QA was their job. And I remember that dovetail with how people understood the way contrast could be structured and really lopsided in weird ways for third-party studios right where mm -hmm. you know obviously this is like i think this is the metacritic is king era in in particular mm -hmm. where where that stuff uh you know there's performance targets to hit uh and and so i remember like this became a really divisive thing where people are talking mm -hmm. about well actually and it's not even obsidian's fault that you know it went this way it was actually it was those dastardly you know publishers it was bethesda hanging them out to dry uh you know <laughs> and i'm like I'm always curious, you know, when I think back to that, I'm curious how it looked from your perspective. You know, it, it came out, it, it changed processes for you. Did did you come out of that feeling like you'd gotten a raw deal? Do you, did you come out of it feeling like Obsidian, like you, like your 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 team broadly had had dropped the ball, or or do you think it was just a more complicated situation? Than people give it credit for being. I think what's it's I I, I think. How I often am looking at it is as and when I talk about this, you know, this 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 topic in, yeah. in particular is like, you know, for me, this was just all people, right? It was just like it was me, uh, it was, you know, Todd Vaughn who runs external development for it was Todd Howard kind of involved tangentially just because he's working on Fallout. Yeah. You know, it's um uh Robert, uh, he was used to run um Zenimax before he passed away. Like these are just all people and we're all f working to figure it out. And uh, we sometimes make good decisions and sometimes we make bad, sometimes we're too hopeful. Yeah. Um, and I think with Fallout New Vegas, it was a lot of 
with a lot of, um, you know, I mean, we were just, move, we were moving really fast, you know, yeah. and, and a lot of us in this industry, we just have, there's, there's a lot of pressures and I'm not, it's like, I don't want to excuse anybody by saying, Hey, there's all these pressures, but yeah. like there's certain pressures, like, like the holiday season. Like we all know if you get a game out in the holiday season and it's a big game, it's going to do better. So there's all this pressure because ultimately we're all trying to make games that do well because we all want to continue to do it and have studios and publishers and things like that. And at the end of the day, it's a lot of people, just individuals. I mean, yeah. And then there's, you know, of course, in any industry and everything, there's people who are, you know, I don't know, riding the line a bit, a little, be a little, uh, you know, a little uh, gray and all of these things. But, you know, I never, like, I was never mad at Bethesda. You know, and maybe because I'm also really good at being mad at myself yeah. like when, when when things don't go the way that they are. Um, and was there a lot of pressure on us to get that game out? Of course, because it was important and they were spending a ton of cash. On her, right. So, like, I don't know. That's that's a, a, and a lot of those things. Um, I guess that's how I see it. I, 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 I really look at it as it, this was just a group of people that were trying to trying to do a thing, um, had the best interests of it. Um and um, and it wasn't like there was rooms of lawyers and threats and it, none right. of that happened. It was none of that. It was just it was just we're all trying to figure it out. And and this one, we skated a little too close to the line of of like trying to get it out a little too fast. And 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 that's and that happens. Well, and this was also an era when um, I want to say like that's still an era where physical retail matters a great deal. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you know deadlines are. It's just such a different thing when there's like physical logistics of we have to put things uh-huh. in boxes and move them to shelves at Target and Walmart and, uh-huh. and et cetera, et cetera. And I'm not sure. I'm sure this conversation still exists for maybe some of the biggest properties in games, but uh-huh. I'm not sure they're as important at all as they used to be. And especially in light of the fact that now, uh, particularly where, you, where you're at, like Game Pass exists. Yes. And I was talking to Josh and Adam a bit about this, but I'm, I'm curious to hear your take as well. Like, you know, one thing Josh mentioned is that now picking a date to release is effectively impossible. There's no there's no great release windows anymore. Uh, you're you're constantly trying to get out of the way of, uh, you know, one giant colossus or another. But on the flip side you know, you have, you don't have to worry about a build being put on a disc and being shipped to stores everywhere uh, to the same extent. And now you have, there's, there's a service where there's sort of a built-in audience that you'll at least be mm-hmm. put in front of. And I'm curious, how does that, again, like, how does that change the job? How does it change how you evaluate these decisions? And has it altered what success means? Uh, there's a few things there. I, yeah. I think, does it, has it altered like fundamentally, like, is it different now because everyone just downloads things for the most part digitally? Um, and, and how that changes how people approach things with, you know, um, services like game pass and stuff like that. I, I don't, it, you know, it doesn't enter into my head about like the game we're making, mm-hmm. you know, I think when it comes to like game pass and stuff like that, I do have questions about like what, what is post-release content and in 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 the world of 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 uh, you know the subscription services and stuff like that? Like I sometimes wonder, um, should we just be trying just be doing sequels and doing them a li- little bit more quickly because we're not trying to do downloadable content, you know? And is that better, you know, particularly for the style for this for the style of games we do? Um, that was even a conversation years ago that I had with uh, Ray and Greg from Bioware when they were deciding whether to do more expansion packs for Baldur's Gate One. 
um, or going to Baldur's Gate 2. And we just, with that point, we just did the math and said, hey, it just makes sense. Let's go make Baldur's Gate 2, which was a great decision. Yeah. <laughs> was, I, I, could, I could take responsibility for maybe three great res- decisions. Um, and I, I, I'll, take, I'll take responsibility for that one. But I think the other thing is just as it relates to like, I mean, ultimately what Josh was saying is that this is all discoverability, yeah. right? And awareness of a game. You know, you go back to, you know, when I was first in the industry, like, you know, we're, we're shipping Super Nintendo titles at, at Interplay and, you know, it's, 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 it's ads in magazines and there's almost no way else to get out, you know, and then it kind of moves into TV, but we're still doing ads and then the web shows up. And I, I think a lot of it is, is just this constantly for us, it's figuring out how, how do we just make sure that people know this game exists and, and, and where are people learning about games and it's always going to change. You know, I mean, you know, I just read some article today that social media is dying or something, right? Okay, so let's say so. So I don't believe that, but let's say social media is dying. Okay, then we'll have to figure out where's the next place when streaming is no longer a thing. Okay, now what do we do? And I think that's the thing. But as it relates to the game itself, I, I, we have not changed how we, how we, what we're making in our games based upon the world is different now with subscription services and, and, um, and that there's just games coming out all the time. When, um, you know, when I think about Game Pass in particular, I, I guess one of the questions that, that, that I'm always left with is, mm-hmm. does it make, does it make risk easier to bear, easier to carry on a project? And I think like Pentiment is a great example of something like this where, mm-hmm. you know, to, like, to an extent, it sounds like, uh, from Josh's Josh's description of it, it's a it's a small project in, in a lot of ways. Though uh, it also appears to be a very, very time intensive one. Like there's a lot of there's clearly a lot of like time and attention and care lavished on it by that small team. But you know you can look at a game like that and you can think about it. it in some ways, it feels like such a long shot in terms of it finding its audience, right? Because it's mm-hmm, like. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do feel like weirdly enough, illuminated manuscripts are in. I do not know why this is the case, but there's a little <laughs> card game. I don't know either. Based off of like that, right. that style of art, it seems like it's trendy. I don't fully get why, but it it it's very distinctive. All that's very cool, but ultimately this is a very um it's like it's a game about very ordinary people, right? It's mm-hmm. it's a game about ordinary life uh in a mm-hmm. medieval village. Dramatic things are happening. But the thing that is not happening is you're finding Excalibur, and it's like it's time for right. You no, not to... at all. You're not fighting dragons. None yeah, of that stuff. Yeah, yeah. And and I'm curious, like, when it comes to evaluating the decision to forge ahead with something like this, like, does the fact that okay, Game Pass exists, uh, mm-hmm. you don't have to convince people to buy it. You just have to convince people to like click download and play it. Mm-hmm. Does that change what is possible in these conversations, or fundamentally? is it the the scope of it was fairly limited that enables you to to make a bet like this because it's, it's relatively small uh i'm just curious like how a conversation around a game like that uh mm-hmm. unfolds in regards to budget and then the release environment yeah uh let's see so i think there's a lot of stuff there uh so i think the first thing of like in one of the main reasons that pentiment came out about was because you know uh i believe in josh Right. And mm-hmm. I believe in his ability to make games. And so if you kind of look at this, again, looking at the world of discoverability and awareness. So really, then, if I believe in Josh, you know, and Josh is going to go make something amazing, um, then 
well, then how, how do we make sure people play it, right? And so what Game Pass provides is the ability, that's that's where it de-risks, you know, it's sort of saying yeah. like, if, if you can then get a game like that on Game Pass for people to try, um, because otherwise it's, it's, it's you know, how do you get people to know about it? Now we're lucky in some ways because Josh is a well-known person, right? And so, it, and we're a pretty well-known studio. And so we can kind of throw stuff out there. And and again, to, to what you're saying about budget, that's where also we can try it because, you know, it probably is, uh, you know, the budget is an order of magnitude smaller than than other things we're working on. And so that is, feels like something like, and, and it's not a like, oh, let's just see what happens. It's not that. It's more of it just does give us that flexibility to say, okay, well, we're not betting. I'm going to use a stupid number because and this is not what we're spending on games at all. We're not we're not betting a billion dollars on this, right? Yeah. And um, and so because because they're not, we can try things, and it doesn't need to be exactly the same, and we don't have to take all this stuff into account. We can make it again about a game about normal lives, and there doesn't need to be combat, and um, it can do. It can, again, try things and not have to check all the boxes of a big AAA product. Um, and that's okay. And, and, but I think the core of what you're asking, I, I guess, there is like, I'm going to believe in a product that Josh is making. I believe people will, I, I, I think he understands what people want to see. And in the end, I guess I'm kind of repeating myself later, really at that point, it's just like, it's just the discoverability. It's it's the yeah. awareness. Like, how do you do it? Because again, there's so many games that are awesome, and they're and it's not because they were. It's not they didn't do well, or they did not do well because they weren't awesome. They didn't do well because people didn't know about them. Does Game Pass at all blur the lines of like what is a success or a failure? Because like I do know, like people who like signed deals with Game Pass who are not Microsoft Studios. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in some ways, I've heard a lot of these deals described as uh, like risk mitigation strategies or a game didn't find its audience. But like via Game Pass, you can you can both b- via the deal recoup some of the loss and also maybe find some of the audience that, that you missed before. Mm-hmm. And it becomes a bit of a it's a murky proposition. Like, did it, did it change the fortunes of the studio? Not necessarily. Uh, did it maybe prevent us from being sunk? Yeah, probably. Uh, you know, and that's that's great. That's there. Uh but I've heard discussions of like it's it's hard to convert sales off of Game Pass and and things like that. That uh, all these things sort of complicate the proposition of what used to be a pretty simple like, yeah. hey, did someone buy the game or not? Real yeah, simple, a, totally. yeah, verdict. And I'm curious, like, yeah, how how does evaluation work for you? Is it is it murkier in this environment than it used to be? Ah, uh, yes. I mean, obviously, we still look at sales. You know, um, you know, when we look at the success of things like Grounded and Outer Worlds and, and all that kind of stuff, we still look, you know, hey, how much money do we make? Um, it does get a lot more challenging with Game Pass. You know, I mean, obviously a game has to succeed on Game Pass for it to matter on Game Pass. Yeah. So so I guess things maybe there's there's two, two, two forks there. I mean, one is, you know, for other developers, you know, they make money for getting for putting their game on Game Pass. And so a lot of them just becomes the the, you know, the the is that is the money they're making worth the sales that they might not get? And the challenge for all of us right now is like, you just don't know. Like, you don't know how much you're being cannibalized, cannibalized, if you are even being cannibalized. You know, some people feel they are, some people feel they don't. I'm certainly not someone with an, with an expert in it, right? You know, being an yeah. expert in, in any of that. And, and, a, and a lot of it is, is just that, um, you know, it's, it's figuring out where your game is going to succeed. And I think that that's the thing. I mean, 
you know, I, and, and if I was just thinking myself as an independent developer right now, all I would say is, okay, I just need to get this in front of as many people as possible. Like, I got to make money on it because I want to keep on making games, but I want to get it in front of as many people as possible. And sometimes that could be a subscription service like Game Pass. Sometimes it's it's not. Um, you know, I think there's no, there's just not any one size fits all thing right now for every single yeah. game, you know, because there's so many different kind of games and people interact with them in so different way, different ways. Um so it's interesting. I like I I um goes back to my question of like even us thinking about like do we do do we do post-release content like like large chunks of post-release content or we do we just go into sequels because of because of game because of subscription services and game pass, right? Um yeah, it's it's uh, I I I have as almost as many questions as you do <laughs> about all of it. Well, that's that's kind of a weird thing too. In like because I'm getting older and time is compressing in my yeah. head, I'm still like your like being a part of Microsoft Xbox, like this is all very new, right? But it's not. Mm-hmm. That's the that is the weird thing. Is like, I'm like, <laughs> right. oh yeah, that just happened. I look up like when did that just happen? Holy right. shit. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> yes. years we're talking about here. Yeah. Uh but th- that th- that did lead me to wonder, like, so what is it like now being part of a pretty sizable studio pretty sizable independent brand mm-hmm. uh in part of as part of this larger organization what is the relationship like like how often are you pitching stuff above you to corporate or are you kind of left to your own devices and you're going to budget to operate like i'm i'm super curious how it works now uh yeah you know being being part of this like you know corporate family so i always use this it's a stupid word um, but I always say it's our job is we get to do our job if we're being good stewards. That's that's what I say. So a lot of it is, is 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 for us. It's always looking at, OK, what what's what does Microsoft want? You know, now we're, we are Microsoft, but it's always good to ask that question, even if you're, you know, even within your own studios like, you know, and so um, and, and ultimately, you know, they want us to make games. They want us to have our own culture. They want us to like um be like I said, be who we are, uh, you know, and, and we're an RPG studio that also tries other things from time to time. It, it all kind of works together, but it's, it's, and, and they're, they want us to keep on doing that, you know? And so, so we understand that. Right. And so that often is how we're thinking about how we're moving forward. That doesn't mean we, we're not innovating. There's no, like, that's a, that's super broad strokes. Right. So we can innovate within that. I feel if we said, Hey, if I wanted to suddenly do a racing game, I mean, I don't know why I would because of Force It, but but let's just say, and I would just go up, I could pitch it. I mean, I, I feel I would be listened to. Um, it would probably be a hard conversation, but but also then I don't want to make a racing game. <laughs> so, you know, and so a, a lot of that is just is just understanding, you know, we have an opportunity based upon who we are in being a part of Microsoft. And then being good stewards is understanding, like we need to respect what, what has been given to us. Like, you know, you know, we're given budgets and we're given timelines and, or we, these are, con- so we're given budgets and we have conversation about timelines. Um, and if we are, re- like I said, if we're respectful of what is being offered to us, we get to do what we're doing. We get to do what we do with, with almost completely hands off. And I mean that in a positive way. Sometimes can, people can spin that and say, oh, they just let you do whatever you want. And you can, no, that, that's not, that's not how that works. But it is still this thing of like, um, it's a relationship, right? And it's it is it is like it's our it's our job to do our part, and it's Microsoft's job to do their part. And we do it together. And we talk all the time, um, 
And it, I mean, it sounds like trite in some ways for me to say, but I'm like actually super thankful. Like it is a, it is a, like, it's awesome to be able to think six years, seven years, 10 years in the future about like, you know, well, let's go develop these tools that are very focused on making role-playing games. And like, where do we want to take the outer worlds in the future? And, and those are awesome things to be able to do that were very hard um, as an independent studio. Was there apprehension around it? Because like, I always think about this year of games at Microsoft is kind of a, a, a weird trajectory, right? You, you mm-hmm. got like bring Jordan Wiseman and, and Fossa in house mm-hmm. and for a while. And then that kind of, it doesn't sound like there was necessarily bad blood, but it sounds like it was creative frustration, uh, mm-hmm. you know, by the end, because I'm not sure Microsoft then was as game oriented uh, mm-hmm. as it is now, I think like that, that iteration of Microsoft kind of didn't know what to do with the, some of the success they were yeah. having. Uh, and you know, you also have like foundational things like the ACES team flight simulator, you, you know, you've got, uh, you know, age of empires and there's that whole, that whole era, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like a little mini golden age. And then it kind of wanes, uh, mm-hmm. and, and then there's this acquisition acquisitions spree. Mm-hmm. Uh, but not all acquisitions pan out well. Like not mm-hmm. everyone is always happy. I sold my company, right? A lot, right. Of, a lot of people end mm-hmm. up uh, pretty profoundly unhappy uh, that they did. Was there apprehension around that? Did you need reassurance? Was the deal such you, <laughs> you any misgivings could be swallowed? Uh, I'm, I'm curious. Um, I, I'm sure it's all of that to an extent, but yeah. um, I, I think there's a few things there. I, so one, you know, all of us that owned the studio, we all did work at Interplay before. So we had worked for a publisher. So we we were already people that had had like understood what that was, you know, the things that are good, the things that are challenging. Um, so it wasn't, it was, so we were kind of, we we're going at it with open eyes in that way. Um, we had, we had had actually, you know, a, a third party relationship with, with Microsoft that didn't go super well. And so that was something, but the people we were now talking with and, 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 um, figuring out how to work together, were totally different people. Uh, you know, I felt like after I, the thing I often say, you know, is just that I think what's pretty remarkable about how it's all gone. And this is not really an apprehension conversation because this is taking the past into account, but is that, um, you know, what Matt Booty uh, talked about in his first conversation we had sitting at lunch in an Italian restaurant, probably about a thousand feet from where I'm sitting, um, was that, you know, your culture is important. We want you to make role-playing games. Our, we, we do not want to be prescriptive. Um, you know, we're, we're talking to you because of who you are, you are as a studio, um, because we feel that's what's going to help us all be successful together, right? And we're almost four years since that happened. And that's, that's exactly the way that it's been working. Like how we, how we talk about things and how we have those conversations about things. It is about, um, it, it is about helping us be, be who we are. Right. And, and, and making those games. And so um, it was really after, like I said, it was after those conversations that, that, that made it like whatever apprehension we had, um, you know, it kind of went away. And one of the other things we did uh, was because as we sort of started to talk to more people about it, um, it was actually right after, sorry, after the announcement, um, now people knew about it. And and Phil was awesome in that he said, hey, I can come down and just talk to everybody about it. I was apprehensive because I was like, oh no, Phil's coming down. Like, am I going to screw this? Am I going to screw the deal? <laughs> like, you know, and it was so interesting because Phil wasn't, 
Phil, that's not in Phil's head, which I found out later. Phil was just coming down to make us feel better. Not, you know what I mean? It, it was a strange thing. Yeah. And, and so he got in a room and and with like 20 of our people and he just talked about Microsoft and talked about what he wanted to do and let him ask questions. And they asked some harsh questions and he fielded them all and and um, and and he walked out the door. And, and that, I mean, that helped a lot of us, you know? And I think that's in the end, it is you have people like Phil, like Matt, like Mary, um, who who make sure that the I, the grand plan or strategy or whatever it was that came about about how we're going to do this new round of acquisitions, they're still there and they still and they're still they 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 talk the talk and walk the walk on it every day. And from your standpoint, like, is there or do you even want? a lot of direction from that level or is it mostly like you know i can see a model of this where it almost feels like uh it's like an endowed charity university or something mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. where it's like you know you like operating costs are covered in, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways and it's you know you have the freedom to kind of choose what you want to do i'm curious like to what degree is it that model versus to what degree you kind of like looking for cues from from above yeah, I mean, you're, you're right, because as, as you were saying that, I'm like, yeah, I mean, we could decide that we just want to go invest in collecting, you know, butterflies and, and you know, and, and particularly this one strain of monarch and we're going to be yeah. the experts, you know, and, you know, and like, and it's like, and, and you could kind of go down this crazy road and, and um, there, there definitely is a, I think like anything in life, you want direction, but you don't want direction. Like, like you want to yeah. know that you're, yeah. you're you want to, you want to know that you're you're doing the right thing and and that we're all on the same page. Uh, and uh, but then you don't want to you don't want people to tell you exactly what to do. And so a lot of that is just again, it's it's in these conversations we 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 have all the time. Um, and uh, you know, and and again, it's it is and freedom is an interesting thing because I think that's even what you're we're trying to say is freedom is freedom sounds wonderful. You know, and and I think a lot of that's probably some of the struggles that we have been through the last few years is like, okay, how is this different? Okay, we used to be like a a, a publisher says, here's ten million dollars, and you know, and we're going to take your left kidney if you want one more dollar, right? You 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 lose your royalties, you, you whatever, lots of different stuff, you know, um, all things agreed to before, but just still still things that you know that that make it challenging, and and so now it's in a world where yeah, if as long as we just as long as like we we are getting everything covered. So we have to now be the people that are providing that level of, of um, pressure. Like we have to be almost our own pressure. We have to be our own publisher right. in that respect. Um, and that's been something we've had to grow into. I mean, that is a, and I think that, I think if I have to ever said anything, and I'm probably, probably not actually very, <laughs> maybe it's a thing, I'm just gonna say it. Um, I think for the studios that become a part of publishers, when they, f- the ones that figure out how to be their own, not just like creative guiding light, but but sort of financial and responsibility guiding light, and that they have they come up with systems that everybody understands. Like, yeah, the money is infinite. Yeah, there's like billions of dollars at Microsoft. It's not infinite, but but we can't treat it that way because then we're not we're not being good stewards. Um, like the, the the studios that do that, I think, are the ones that that stay. Um, and the studios that don't are the ones that get gobbled up or or people laid off or, or things like that. And I, and going back to kind of your last question, I think that was one of the things that why I was one of the things I was comfortable about was with coming a part of Microsoft was the other studios that they were choosing 
because yeah. we also, as a group, also don't want to be a part of a group of people where you could be doing awesome, which is what happened to a lot of us at Interplay. And then you have like three or four other groups that are just like, you know, flushing, flushing money down the toilet. And, um, and the people that um, Microsoft has brought on are, are people that have been running successful studios for 15, 10, 15, 20 years. Um, and so, uh, and so that means, you know, like, like, if we're all doing it and we're all doing it well, we get to keep on doing it. In terms of, so Josh alluded to the fact that um, things got pretty tight with uh, Deadfire. Um, mm -hmm. And I am curious, like one, I'm curious, like how tight are we talking? <laughs> like in terms of like the, the most dire scrape, uh, you know, you, you, you were in, in your, in your sort of independent days. I'm, I'm curious, like mm -hmm. uh, what was the most in jeopardy you ever felt the company has been in? Oh, the most in jeopardy was before we did the Kickstarter for pillars of eternity. Yeah. Um, that was just because um, we just had a, a lot of different stuff going on all at once that, that just was, it was a lot of plates, you know, like, Stuff was, you know, stuff with South Park was always um, up in the air. And this is no way sort of blaming Matt and Trey, but just they had a lot of other stuff going on in their their lives. Right. And, it, you know, depending upon what part of South Park we're talking about, Book of Mormon was either in a, in a disaster state or it was so successful that they had no time. Right. And so and then that leads to, like, how is the publisher feeling about it? So that's going on. And so and then and then. You know, we'd worked for a year on this on this uh, RPG for Microsoft, and it had been and it had been canceled. We, you know, we had actually had a couple different other publishers that were interested in it, but now that it had been canceled, of course, there's now taint on it's it. It's got that mark on it. Yeah. It's got right, and so and so we couldn't sell it, right? And so we had to try to sell something else. Um, and uh, you know, and so that was like we had. I mean, as an example, and I'm probably got the numbers wrong, but you know. Um, you know, we're at like 260 people now. And, and, um, I think we were down to 80, 80, yeah. 80ish. Right. Um, and, and it was, and at that point in time, there was like, we had the, we had a meeting, like we, <laughs> we, 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 the five of us sat in my office, um, uh, which is on the other side of this wall since I moved my offices all the time. Um, and, uh, and which I just said, like, what do we want to do? I mean, we can close it up or do we want to, or do we want to swing? And, and that I have to, I have to really appreciate my, my partners in there. And they all said, no, but we, we started this, we want to keep it going. And so we did. And, and, and I incredibly appreciative of, of Adam and, and Josh of really coming and like pushing me hard on the Kickstarter thing. Like I was like, I knew what it was, but I, and, and, yeah. and that really started our trajectory out of that hole. Um, um, and most of the things that we did after that, that or pretty much everything we did after that part has gone well. Um, yeah, I mean, there were some challenges with Dead Fire, and it didn't initially sell as well as we had wanted it to, and and we were then trying to figure out. But but really, it was that it was that it was that early. I'm gonna get the year wrong, but it was like that early mid 20, 2012 that was probably the scariest. How when you, like when you're in that situation, like mm -hmm. is that a situation where you now know like the week that you're not going to be able to make payroll or like make your obligations. Like, is it that, is it that nip and tuck at, at that level? Um, I'm trying to, so a lot of sometimes, like I think at that point in time, like the five of us, um, I, and I probably might have this a bit wrong, but I think there was, that was a period of time where we did page ourselves for, I don't know, six or nine months or something like that to help the studio, you know, yeah. um, 
a lot of that was just, it was just figuring out how do we manage this stuff? How do we work with our landlord? I mean, there was like, again, you got all these stuff in the air. You're trying to figure out how, um, but on the, on the flip side, you're also trying to do this balance of like, not, you know, um, not putting yourself in a position where like, let's say it all goes down and you have like hundreds of thousand dollars on your back of stuff you're now responsible for. Now, it, now, now you're going to take that to wherever you go next. And so that's, that was the balance. That right. was the balance as well. And we we always did that pretty well. Um, if I have to say anything, and it's probably the, the unsexiest part of of making games, but we were always pretty good about like how we managed our finances. Like you know, yeah. the first thing we did was, was put a big spreadsheet. Oddly, the spreadsheet that I put together in April of two thousand three is still the spreadsheet that is being used <laughs> <laughs> in in November of twenty. Uh, and I will I will sometime this afternoon I will open that spreadsheet to look at where our budgets are. Right, and um, and obviously it's evolved over time. And yeah. we've had you, we have you know great financial help, um, uh, and so. You know, and, and so that probably helped us get through those times because we really understood. But it was a lot of also. I mean, you know, I mean, you got to put your, uh, got to put your pride away. So you know, yeah. and just like call up and said, I need that milestone money faster, or or or, and also be. I'm not a, I'm I'm not a like mean yelling guy, but sometimes I'd have to get on the phone with a publisher and say, look, this money was due two weeks ago and you still haven't spent it. You said, well, yeah, check runs like. Look, we have a contract. You have to, you know, and those are not words that come easily to me. And you know, and we and we and we had to do that, you know. And um, but we got through it. Is what I mean. It it, it it is the part of it is we just kept yeah. on and we got through it. Nobody gets into a creative industry to chase down checks, but it ends up being <laughs> uh, like such a huge part of any sort it of is. creative endeavor. Yes. Um. You know the. You know, so part of your studio's DNA is just that there's always a few irons in the fire. Uh, mm-hmm. that there's the, there's always a few ongoing projects and you know these days when you look you look around the studio like obviously we're, you know I was talking to Adam uh, you know grounded is a different sort of project and you, you mm-hmm. got a bit more of a uh, you know a, a live game in some ways it doesn't get wrapped up and finished in the way a narrative game uh, you know necessarily does but, but mm-hmm. I'm curious like in terms of the internal development culture uh, I am curious both like, you know, for one thing, is it important? Like, is, is the fact that like you're, you're an RPG shop, is that still as important as it used to be? Or, you know, is it, are you, is, is, is the floor kind of open to two ideas? I'm, I'm, I'm curious how, because on the one hand, you know, there is benefits having a core identity that you, you return to yeah. and a expertise, but also like people have their passion projects. Uh, and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm curious how you sort of navigate that. I, I thought probably a weird way to say this is like, I think, you know, you hear that saying perfect is the enemy of the good. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think sometimes when studios like, I mean, yeah, I mean, I hate to make racing studios again, but I think racing, particularly racing studio, is just such a like, but even I think, and then you can have variations on what you're doing in racing, you know, from a standpoint of like the, now the, the, uh, Damn, I can't remember the name of the the racing thing. The, the one that's all based on crashing, um, burnout. The, the, right. So, so you can even within racing, you can have sort of this diff- different concept of like what kind of racing games you're going to do. 
Um, and then again, I, you know, some of our DNA is goes all the way back to our early days when you know we all did make lots of different games. You know, I worked on a chess game, I worked on a tile game, I worked on a solitaire game, I worked on a two D platformer that you know um, some of these games even shipped. Um, and so uh, and and so I I don't know I I don't I and I'll say I I this is not me thing here is I don't get so caught up in like does it have to be very stringently this or that. Because in the end, it's a game. And and some of these people like Josh and Adam have now been baking games for years and years and years. Why couldn't they make a game that is adjacent to what we do? You know? Yeah, if Josh came and said he wanted to go a racing game, sorry to keep on using the analogy, um, um, I would like, really? Yeah, I, saw, I saw the title <laughs> set up behind him in the call. So like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it past him. No, he's, yeah, it's, it, is, it is one of his, he goes in waves. Um, sometimes it's biking, sometimes it's motorcycles, sometimes it's cars. Um, but uh, yeah, so I mean, that's I, I don't I don't stress about it. Like, and it yeah. can get you can get into these conversations that are sort of this zero sum conversation. Well, if it's not an RPG, why are we doing it? Like, and and that seems logical in some ways. Well, our tools are this. Like, well, not I mean, well, our tools are we have a dialogue tool. Well, that works perfectly well for so the dialogue tool used for RPGs is a dialogue tool that's used in grounded and pentiment, right? And so. So there is a point, this is probably the best way to say it, there's a point at which we, we could push so far away from what we do that we'd have to really look if it makes sense. But, you know, I, I want to give people a creative outlet. I want people to have opportunity to try things, you know, and um, and that's why I like having those the smaller projects around because, yeah. like, you know, there are some people that will, will came to work here in 2003 and will be here in 33. 2033 and we'll only ever worked on our big rpgs and they'll be happiest you know happiest clams other people like well i really enjoyed working on that big rpg and i really needed outlet for a couple of years yeah and and so part of that is even in just the managing and, and kind of the the working with everybody that that we that, that wants to be here um and so i don't know that it's weird yeah. that just all ties together in my head it's not never it's not it's no like one thing about why we do it or don't do it you know, it's it is it more of so, a, it almost sounds like there's almost like a like staff management aspect to this as well. Mm-hmm. We're independent of whether or not the project is necessarily a, like separately from the PNL on a project. Mm-hmm. There's also a folks need to rotate off mm-hmm. the big project, and they might need a different creative field for a while, mm-hmm. and you want to keep them. And then when that is done, they can rotate back to whatever yeah. is the highest priority thing. Yeah. And that's an interesting way of looking at it. Cause yeah, like I've, I've, I've seen that discussed elsewhere where it's like, um, yeah, the, the notion that like people need shore leave away from the, mm-hmm. the big flagships. Yeah. And it can be, it can be time. Like some people take a month or two or three months off. Um, but I, I think as you were saying, time, time compression, right? I mean, as we, as we get older, even if you take three months off and you just hop back, get back into the thing you were doing before, it just, I think it all comes back as to like, oh, I'm just doing the thing I was doing before. Um, and so, so yeah, I think for us having these opportunities from time to time for people, I think, I think for, for certain people, it, it's, it helps a lot. How, um, that actually that does, you know, the, the idea of like taking two or three months off or like the mm-hmm. idea of a sabbatical, I'm curious, do those, like, do those exist at, at your studio? Oh, yeah, like, yeah. How, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I'm we, curious how that works. So we, so I, so I won't go into the complete thing because it's some of its money stuff, but, um, uh, so what we do is, uh, once someone hits their, uh, 10 year, 
I will probably be saying this wrong, but I'm going to go with 10 years. So once someone hits their 10 years, we won't hold you to the employee. Yeah, they give, they're giving you, because I have to bring up a conflicts page to make sure I'm right. Um, But um, uh, once they hit their 10 years, they get a one month paid sabbatical. Yeah. Um, and with a bonus so that they can travel and, and stuff like that. And then we do that at 15 and 20 and, and, and things like that. Um, so that uh, it might be 15 and 20. It might be 10, 15, 20. That's the one I just, I don't remember. But we give everybody a month paid off and and um, and, uh, and and basically, like I said, a bonus to kind of go and hopefully travel <laughs> or buy cheesy poofs, what really ever, whatever, whatever they'd like to do. Is that a solve for burnout or do you have to do other stuff in addition to that? Because because one thing I've, you know, it seems like the the study of burnout has become more of a uh-huh. field that, that people look at now. And, you know, one of the things that comes up is you're kind of playing with fire with burnout uh-huh. because it sort of creeps up on you. And once it hits, it's like it's not a thing where it's like, hey, take a few weeks off and like come mm-hmm. back and get some rest. Like once you crossed into like true burnout territory, that's not gonna, that's not gonna yeah, do yeah, it. Yeah. And I'm curious, like, you know, is that something that you monitor for? Is that something you have to stay, you and managers like are trying, have to try and stay ahead on? And mm-hmm. is that something that's solvable through like a PTO or sabbatical policy? Or is that, does that require a bit more like active intervention? Uh, it's all the things. Yeah. I, I think part of it, I think if it comes to why is the burnout exist? Right. Like what's causing the burnout? Is it, is it, is it work, the work you're trying to do, we're not supporting like the, like just say like the tools are bad. And so it's like, you're, it's like, you're literally trying to like pound nails with a screwdriver and you've been doing that for six months. And so that's the burnout. Is it, you feel that you're being pressured to work a lot more hours, which we're very careful about that. Like it is a, it is, that is a, uh, you know, (laughs) We we talk about it all. I think we talk about it enough that people get sick of hearing about it. But it yeah. is a um because that, that's burnout. Um, burnout also is is just working on something you don't want to work on, you know, and not believing in it. And burnout is working for a manager that you don't like and don't believe in and don't trust, you know. And so it's a lot. It's so it's all of these things, right? So I think for us, it's 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 just trying to figure out all those things. It's making sure people like. People get sick of me bringing it up every time we we, we do a we do a, a studio meeting uh, over Teams every, once a month in which we go through all the projects and I kind of talk and it's it, if I don't do it every single time at least every other time I get up there I said okay everybody do you have the right equipment does your mouse work do you need a different desk do you need different chairs do you like your keyboard <laughs> you know yeah. and so um, and so we go through that and then like we look at it as if we allow people to work extra. Even if they're doing it, we're not, we're not, because we, we don't, but we never, we're not asking them to, it still becomes our responsibility, right? So that's probably something where we're very active. It's like, we try to understand when people are working too much and get them to stop. Cause it's, cause what happens is it doesn't matter that the fact that they burn themselves out, they're still burned out and that's bad for them. And it's bad for us. Yeah. And so, you know, I don't know. And, and so that's what it is. I, I think that, that I think for me, burnout is caught, like I said, is caused by a, a, a lot of different things. Some of it is preemptive. We manage it. We have to manage some of this is, is the during of it. And some of it is, yeah, some of it we're late to the game and we have to deal with the after effects of it. And that's harder. And, and that is a case by case basis of, as you brought in, it's like, it's time off. It's, um, you know, it's, it's uh, maybe moving to a different project. I mean, that's what's so awesome about having multiple projects here. Yeah. When something, someone needs a break, they go to a different project. Um, but yeah, but a lot of it is just, it's, it's a lot of talking, you know, I, I think that's the end of the day is, 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 is having a culture where people talk to each other all the time, you know, and I think, I mean, it, then you at least can get ahead of it sometimes. 
know we're tight on time here, but I, I have a sort of last question about sure. internal pitch process. Like, you know, obviously, you know, you mentioned uh, Josh and Adam, who had a lot of, you know, they're trusted collaborators, uh, mm-hmm. et cetera. But I, but I am curious, is it a thing where is the first stage of the pitch process to your level or, or, or people at the management level, or is it more about selling it on the collaborators like laterally that you'd want? I'm, I'm curious of like, do people like, do people bring in like a little skunk works project to you mm-hmm. and like a team? It's like, we as a group want to do this mm-hmm. or does it start with like the vision holder? It goes upstairs and then the team is assembled. I'm, I'm curious what, what is the model for these yeah. sort of uh, internal entrepreneurial uh, things? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, like for like like a lot of your questions, I wish I had an answer that was one thing. But I think that uh, a lot of what we do is it's so case by case. Yeah. So so as an example, so take the outer worlds, right? So we knew like we wanted to go make our own IP. Okay. Well, who do we like? Like oh, well Tim Kane's working for us again, right? Okay. And oh, Leonard wants to leave Blizzard. Okay. Well, Chris Jones, who also worked on Fallout originally, like he's kind of freed up. Okay. You know, well, then what do we want to do? And then I'm like, well, I think the like we want a brand that is sort of like we we kind of just said, okay, well, well, we don't want to just do post-apocalyptic earth, you know, we don't want to do fantasy. So let's we haven't done a sci-fi game. So let's think sci-fi, but think kind of post-apocalyptic, because that's kind of the vibe. Right. And then we just start right. I even start writing pitches. And so that's how one, like, that's how that came about. Yeah. Um, you know, pillars came out in a very, pillars of attorney came out in a very different way. That's from Adam and Josh, sort of like them coming with this idea. We can, like, man, we, we really, like, we love Infinity Engine games. So what happens if we pitch an Infinity Engine game on Kickstarter? And I'm like, well, that's smart, you know? And so, and then that, so that started, that started, that started with them. Um, and, you know, in our past, a lot of it was publishers, you know, them, them having some core of an idea and, and, and that we did so, but now, yeah, it's, it's going to be like, and then, and then it evolves. Like if you ask me today, what are the games we're going to be working in in five years, I'll be close, mm-hmm. but I'm not going to be perfect because things are going to change, you know? And, and, and so, um, and then particularly for the smaller things, I, I, I know over the next you know year or two, like people come up and pitch more stuff. Um, I think that the avenue and it's, I feel almost bad in saying it. I think the avenue that is the one that happens the least is just some designer has the idea for something and they put a, you know, they put a five page thing together. Like that's, that's not led to something, you know, for us. But then we also have like, even though we have multiple teams and we're a pretty big studio, there's only so many slots, Yeah, you know? And so like, and then, and that, and you, and, and I, and I know that can be disappointing sometimes for people. They're like, like, oh, I want to have my game vision and things like that. And, and I'm like, well, you know, part of it is, is we're just trying to figure out like, and even bringing up what Josh had said to you about like, there's just so many games. We're trying to do that guess too, right? Should we, you know, I don't know, should we go do, uh, you know, you're, it's, a, it's, a, it's a zombie apocalypse game based in a McDonald's, you know, is that the answer for the net? You know, is, will that fit in and, and help it? So, um, yeah, like, again, I know it's been the answer to my, a lot of your questions, but it's a lot of just case by case, but but saying what you said, which yes, it's keyed upon the individuals, right, who are making the pitch. It is sometimes based upon some business stuff like, hey, like Grounded was like, hey, survival games look like an opportunity. Let's start with that and go, well, how would we do our version of it? And that's what ended up with Grounded. Um, 
you know, and then sometimes it just, it is a, it's a brand we already have, you mm-hmm. know, we have outer worlds, we have pillars, you know, so our top from time to time, that's, we, that's what we should be working on too. Awesome. Uh, I could, you know, ask tons more questions. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm actually really intrigued by the uh, vibes based approach of mm-hmm. like, yeah, let's just, let's just read the wind, uh, you know, read the green as it were, yeah. but, you know, I mean that, you know, as as we've discussed, though, I mean, the industry has changed so many times around mm-hmm. you uh, that mm-hmm. in, in some ways, like what worked in 2000 didn't work in 2009. Yes, didn't totally. Work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, it's been a great chat. I appreciate the time uh, you made for us and hope we can have you back soon. Absolutely. Happy to do it. Thanks, Fergus. And we're back. I uh, hope everyone enjoyed that chat with Fergus as much as I did. Uh, there aren't a ton of people who've had the breadth of experience in a role like that uh, as as Fergus has. And it was terrific getting his perspective and and, and talking through Obsidian's course through the industry. Uh, and he's still there, right? Yeah. Like that is I think that is one of the most unique parts about so frequently when you get sold, you go through all sorts of ups and downs. And that studio has had some really extreme highs and some extreme lows. But the fact that they've had that sort of like leadership stability um, all along is incredibly unique. And especially post Microsoft to be, you would have thought cool time to, Cash it in, move move yeah, on, and I think it's interesting that there are still golden handcuffs on him. But I didn't get that impression that this is a guy who's waiting, uh, you know, waiting to call it. Uh, so well, they just published. They just got to put out Pentiment. Like they're yeah. putting out, you know, like they, you know what I mean. It's not like they they were acquired. And it's like time to make Fallout New Vegas two, which of course I wish they would do. But you know what I mean. Like it wasn't just immediately go make these big blockbuster things. Now that we have an RPG studio, it's like I don't know. Go make this thing that if it wasn't on Game Pass, it probably would have sold. 50,000 copies. <laughs> yeah, it's right. And that's, and that's the thing. It's like, it's, it's very cool that a game like Pentiment uh, exists. It's been awesome seeing that, that get some love uh, as, as well. Uh, before we go, let's, let's pause and take a little dip in the question bucket. Uh, so our first question comes from Emma. Hey, Waypoint. I was inspired by the water talk on the pod to see if I could rig a home water distillation system. I don't really have money to drop on one of the fancier setups you can just buy and have ready to go. But the Internet has plenty of ideas for how you can do it with things you probably already have in your kitchen. Now, I'm not doing this as part of the quest for the perfect tasting water, but because I want to be prepared for the water wars. I figure the dehumidifier could be a useful tool in the toolkit if you can find a way to make all that sweet air juice safe to drink. Years ago, I might have called it paranoid, but I'm feeling increasingly like disaster preparedness is a perfectly rational undertaking. So where each of you on the prepper spectrum, do you have a fallout shelter or just a few spare expired cans of beans somewhere? What disastrous eventualities have you prepared for rationally or irrationally? Thanks for making a great show, Emma. Um, I didn't, I've spent a couple of times after the war in Ukraine broke out looking at the nuke chart, the like the the one that shows you how far a nuke would go. And I actually I walked. OK, if like the sirens went off and I had 30 minutes to like figure out what was going on, it was it was going to hit Chicago. What do what do I do? Uh, could I get my kids in get time? Your family like, and you, which... tr- you drive to the blast zone. You will not like <laughs> you will not want to survive like this is everyone who studies nuclear war. 
you do not want to be one of the people who escapes the initial initial blast. Like the <sighs> the living will envy the dead is a hundred percent like an accurate read. So if it was hit, it was to hit downtown. The basement at my neighbor's is far enough down that we'd probably be cool. And they have a lot going on in that basement. We'd have a good time for a couple of weeks. The question would be, can I couldn't get my wife? She's gone. She's in the city. Goodbye. Loved you. We've had a, we had a nice life. The daycare is very close to the house. I could get there, get back, get to that basement um, and, and, and see what we could do. I don't think I would have the confidence to put my kids in the car and head towards the blast, Rob. I don't think I could do that. <laughs> I'd have to go to the, I'd have to go to the basement with the projector and shitloads of liquor and just, 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 just cross my fingers. <laughs> but that's the closest I've gotten. Like when that stuff happened, I, I think Matthew Galt, who's been on our podcast a number of times, wrote a big, uh, nuke piece like I don't know a month or so ago um, when there was the reports that ooh like you know Putin might do a dirty bomb or something like that. I don't know it was the, it was the, I had five minutes looked it up and got myself uh, adequately freaked out as I tried to navigate that website but otherwise n- no I have not really done I, I've, I've not done any 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 prepper work um, uh, broadly speaking yeah <clears throat> I haven't done anything for any sort of, like, immediate eventualities, but there's definitely been a few moments where I'm like, if I had to move somewhere where there was fresh water, where would it be? Mm-hmm, <laughs> Just mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if New York goes under, which it will eventually, but if it happens faster than I expected and I, and I have to move in my lifetime, <laughs> where where could I move where I would have a source of fresh water and there was like a, a moment where we we're like looking at places in Wisconsin. <laughs> it's like it's very cold though. I don't know that I could actually do it. Yeah, it's not. Okay, okay. So well, I <laughs> uh, can't get for uh, damn. It's it's cold in Wisconsin. Guess I'll just not have is, water. If, if if it's so, if if climate change is is up to the point where uh, New York is underwater, uh, maybe it's warmer. You know? <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, yeah. Look, I want to look. I spent most most of my Thanksgiving, even in moments where like I was, I was, I thought I would be on the couch. the The weather, especially when the sun was out, was gorgeous during the week. I was in Wisconsin for for a couple of days, and I spent the most of it. Like I put my kids down for a nap, and I would walk down the street, and someone had a a fire going outside, and I was just I would grab a beer and sit down and do that. And I was like, you know, climate change is bad. We should fix it. <laughs> But I guess if I get some pleasant Thanksgivings out of it, you know, it's not all bad. Uh, so I'm just saying, kind of, I, it, it's happened. Yeah, no, like, it's, it's happening. We're, you know, it was also warm enough that I jumped in the water. I, oh I, I did a polar plunge over the over the weekend. Damn. Um, and so uh, it was cold as shit, but like, but it not as polar as it used to be. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I so for me, I think when it comes to prepping stuff, I've, I've there's I'm not very far. Uh, uh, down that road in part because the issue is and I think this is why like prepper stuff tends to attract people who are fairly well off and well to do because Mm -hmm. like real prepper shit requires a lot of storage and ability to have like private infrastructure somewhere on your property that does not describe most people and so so, owning property first off even and that can't be and that can't be 
oh, I own the condo or something. I own the apartment in my building or whatever. Because <laughs> like, no, you need outbuildings yeah. and such uh, for for some of the stuff. So I I tend not to be very very uh, far along the stuff because you know depending on what you're prepping for, it turns out there's going to be points of failure because you know society is networked uh really really closely together and it's very hard to cover all those eventualities and frankly you like you know in in some of the scenarios you'd be preparing for there will be much bigger problems uh to worry about than like do we have do we have uh (laughs) yeah like fresh water and uh some some canned goods for for a few days like and that's the other thing is yeah, I, we do have fresh water for a couple days. We we always have like a few days uh, worth of worth of like, you know, preserved food and such just as a matter of course, because, yeah, occasionally like, power outages or utility failures do do hit. But I don't go too far beyond that because, frankly, it is like it's it's a lot of hassle for an illusion of security that I don't think is real in the face of some of those things you're contemplating. Like the, like the, the, the water issue uh, is, is real, but like it's the, the way these things are going to manifest is as like retreat from arid areas. Uh, but it is not going to manifest as uh, well. It's time for Mad Max and for us to be like shooting it out over who controls the humidifier that <laughs> that ain't going to yeah. be it. Um. The the one thing I could see myself if like so right now we are I've mentioned a few times like because our neighbor remodeled we're up to our eyeballs in like fighting with the mice that have lived in the building for like thirty years mm-hmm. and we sort of have hit a point in the last couple of weeks where like we realized we're the suckers that this condo existed for thirty years and we are the people who are getting hit with the deferred maintenance bill, right? Like 30 mm-hmm. years. Like it's, it's like when you buy a house and you're like, this house seems great. Two years later, you learn the roof needs to be replaced. Ugh. That's just, the, uh, you know what I mean? That's nah. just you. That's just, you know, the, the, the wheel turns and you get caught at the wrong moment in sequence. That's kind of where we're at. Mm. And so there's a part of us that's like, you know, we dump a lot of money into fixing this place up. Um, but, you know, if we were able to scrape that kind of money together, maybe better off like moving out to a place uh, in the burbs, a place like, you know, a backyard. Where we could release Mina to to have fun and do dog things, uh, yeah. a place for us to be less cheek by jowl uh, all the time. And the one thing I think about in those types of situations would be like a generator uh, would be one. So that's the, that's the one I thought about, like when I walk through Costco and there'll be some sale on a generator like every once in a while hmm that wouldn't be the worst thing to just have you just never know if you're gonna be one of those weird pockets where like big storm blew through the area and some places you hear about like just don't get their power restored for like two weeks because like they're small part of the grid or whatever it didn't so they didn't quite happen to us but when we when we bought the house uh our our oldest jessica was had just been born and there was a gnarly storm that came through, knocked out power. Um, and we like, you know, 24 hours, we, we stayed 24 hours thinking maybe it'll just come back on. And then as it approached nightfall of the second day, like you're just watching the thermostat go further and further down. And like, we could have bundled up 
and figured it out um, and hopefully wrote it out to the morning. But we had a, a newborn and it was like being in the house as it's approaching 50 degrees seems unsafe. Um, and so we ended up going to my mom's place and then discovering another 24 hours after that that the power came on because all my my phone blew up as like different device like different devices turned back on. I was like, oh, we've got power again. Um, and that was a situation where. The, the the it was just on our side of the street, like across the street. Yes. They maintained power. We had not become friends with like the cohorts of neighbors that we are now friends with. And like in that scenario, we could have gone over there, but we didn't have another option. It was like, okay, I guess we'll just leave our house and hope the pipes don't freeze and they'll come back on. You know, I know a lot of people dealt with this in Texas during that big winter spike um, oh. a winter ago where uh, like a buddy of mine let, they had a baby. They left, rented a hotel room because they had generators going. That was the only place they could go. And then when they came back, their house was just full of fucking water Ugh. because all their pipes burst in the in the times that they were gone. But they made the they ultimately made the right decision to leave because there's nothing they could have done about it. Yeah, this is um, Patrick. Do you remember? I don't know if this this hit like the the western or northwestern burbs as much. Uh, there was like. An ice storm followed by a severe cold snap in like 94, I want to say. Or actually, no, the one I'm thinking of, I think, was more like 90, uh, 99 or 2000. Uh, but like, might have been, it was, you know, it was really, when you live in the Midwest, it's extremely difficult to get school canceled. Like, it just does yeah. not happen. Like, like the cities, which is are crazy because the- out here it happens all the time. Like, right. in Boston, it's like we're getting snow, school cancellations everywhere. Oh, like, it, I mean, it used to be, you know, I remember the one or two times it got canceled that it was a you'd rush downstairs to the television. Yep. You didn't get a phone call. There was no one to call. You were radio. just on the news. There was on the ticker that like you'd be watching for like <laughs> stock prices. It would say which districts or specific schools had canceled school based on largely based on like where did the city infrastructure manage to get, mm. you know, bus routes. Um, And so it only happened to me once or Twice, it was exceedingly rare, uh, but I do believe one of them was not because of snow, well, but it was because of the temperature, and they were afraid the kids that had to walk to school yep. could develop hypothermia on the walk Ugh. if it was going to be more than a couple of blocks. And so that was one of the rare days where school got canceled, um, and it, that must and that must be – I don't remember ex- so, exactly what happened, but that must be what you're There was a cold snap in the 90s where it was like, yeah, it was so cold that they canceled a bunch of stuff. But then I want to say like 99, 2000, there was a ice storm where like sleet froze on the lines almost instantly. And so power lines fell down everywhere in at least northwest Indiana. And we were – so initially everything's canceled. Power is out everywhere. And for a while, it's fun. But then after like two days, power starts coming on everywhere. And we watch like, you know, two blocks away. We were going for walks, keeping tabs on things. Two blocks away. Oh, they got power now. We'll be soon. How's across the street on one side of the block? Get power. We're like, all right. Any it's minute so now. wild to, to, to see the, like the, the grid that transparently. Yeah. Yep. Like you just don't think because you just think of neighborhoods as blocks and you're thinking, oh, that must be how it's all Patrick, structured. We as run well. a grid. We run a subgrid with three houses. <laughs> and so the, and oh this is God. why we ended up without power for like a week because you were so low on the priority. Three list. houses. It was it like like 
all three houses were fed by one line coming off a, a pole and that hadn't come down. It was just somewhere in the, in the chain, whatever fed that had failed and we yeah. just were not restored. So we see everyone around us now has power <laughs> and we are entering like day five, day six, no power. At that point, it was starting to piss us off. Uh, at that point, oh, sure. it was like, this is, this is bullshit. And that, and so that is one thing I think about is especially in the Northeast, there's so many like, there's so many woods, there's so many trees, there's so many weird little twisty towns with old infrastructure that like, yeah, if I lived in a detached house somewhere, I would probably want some kind of Oh, you'd of have to have it. I would do that, yes. Mm. If I lived any, like, you know, if I, I thought if, uh, if the world ever got weird, I would go to wisconsin probably my parents like little house and i would i would buy i would go to costco and buy generator too it was just, that would be the kind of house that would not they would not be on the priority list uh, exactly like it's exactly tiny, it's a tiny town it's not in the middle of nowhere but it's 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 far enough away that i don't think you'd be you'd be you'd be thinking of power coming back in weeks not days right or hours. and i can't i gotta be online like sorry i need <laughs> i'm going to game the crew whatever is is going so it'll be like <laughs> Like, you know, my needs are simple. I just need to power like heat for the bedroom. I need to power kitchen appliances and uh, a TV, my a Plex sound server system, needs to work. Plex server, etc. cetera. Oh, yeah. That's, and, there you go. You just good. leave that case open and, you know, blast all the heat off coming off the 3090 that you've got in there into the room. Done and dusted. That's very true. <laughs> oh, it's, oh, it is. So I, in you know, my downstairs uh, uh, our house where a split level gets really cold. I mentioned that before. And um, we're hitting the period of the winter where now that's finally kicking into gear. And so I have a little, you two can see it. It's a little heater behind mm. me. In the morning, if I just put that on for three or four minutes, close the door, room gets very pleasant for, for a number of hours. And it's, I don't have to like crank the heat in the house because the upstairs then gets too hot to compensate for the, for the downstairs. But um, what I've been, I've been noticing when uh, I stream cyberpunk. Yeah. I don't have to put the heater on because my my machine is right yeah. next to me and that's on streaming and playing a, a fairly intensive game for, you know, seven to eight hours. And I'm like, it is nice and toasty wow. in this room today. And I finally realized, like, oh, that's the days that I play cyberpunk uh, and the machine is just doing its business. Going, going hard. Oh. Uh, the the only like I the I would give anything though for a more efficient water heater. That's the thing that I'm really like ah. Mm. How can how can that be the biggest consumer of all the energy? It's so much. It's so much less interesting than what the computer is doing. And yet it's just like oh sorry, uh, both of you took showers and you ran the dishwasher twice today. I am now going to double your energy consumption for the day. No, you have to spend no. so much money to get the efficient water heater and then to make that up. I know over you. It's it's essentially the math is because they call them generational water heaters. I forget what, what are those called? The, the expensive. Ones. I've never heard the, of this. Hold the tankless on. tankless water. Heaters. I, I, I've, um, I've heard that can be oversold, though, too. I've heard like there's. Oh, yeah. sure. But like even if even if it's not right, like the, we had a water heater go uh, in the first year we bought the house. And thankfully, we had the. It's pretty common these days. You get like essentially appliance insurance um, when you when you buy buy the house from from the previous owners, and it'll cover a lot of a major appliance like a HVAC or something going. And our water heater happened to go one month before that insurance was up, so you know I had to pay I think for the labor, but the yeah. the up to a certain amount the water tank was going to be covered by this insurance, and they were trying to sell me on a tankless because they were like, hey, your kids will get to use this water heater. 
And I was like, yeah, but how much does it cost? And I was like, well, they rattled off whatever price. It was like more than $10,000. And I was like, no, 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 no. Like, I, I, I'm good. Like, and they're like, but over time, you'll make money. I was like, yeah, over 20 years, like, I, I would love it to be more efficient, but I also would love that. Insurance companies <laughs> would love to stop covering water water heaters rupturing and like demolishing uh-huh. uh, like tons of tons of houses. Uh, so I think the tankless the water heater is is what you're looking yeah, for. So it just becomes it becomes a, a, a measure of like you, then you'd have to be in the place long enough to gain those efficiencies over time to make up what you spent you know up front. Yeah, I mean there's a there's there's a point where uh, you know there's also just a pure physics element of Water, tough to heat. Heat, yeah, yeah. It's like <laughs> just a big flame, yep. just going for a long time. Uh, but no, but yeah, if this you get is a, a big enough CPU, and you run the water. You make a. It's not a closed system anymore, right? You're just constantly pouring in new cold water. Hot water goes I, out to the bathroom. <laughs> while while my computer is mining for crypto, yeah, exactly. it'll also be right next to the water heater and and heating that baby. Is, We're making money on both thing, ends. Like, when I get fully like grand designs pilled and like I see the fucking oxygen not included ass like pipelines people are using to like, okay, so we've got a hot tub that we keep covered, but that keeps the water like re- like really, really warm. And we cycle water from that through underfloor heating coils uh, and that water like heats the home and mm-hmm. then that cycles up into <laughs> and I'm like, that's genius. This is so like yeah. he, now you're heating the water, but it, like it's 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 being used constantly that that energy uh, that's incredible. And just imagine, yeah, like submerge s- processors and such in, somewhere <laughs> in the pipeline and get that get that heat off it. It'd be incredible. And then you are back to this is the prepper shit. And this requires like. <laughs> right. You can design you can design systems like that to the spec required that you can be confident that like if the system hiccups, it's not going to send water or like shorting electronics <laughs> just like spiraling through your house. Uh, so that's that's definitely something that uh, th- that I keep in mind. Uh, I guess you know somewhat on this vein, uh, uh, Guillaume Veyat uh, writes. Hello, gamers advice. Six years is about how long a Nintendo console has before its successor is released. So it's not too surprising to hear conversations about wanting a pro switch or its successor. I may be in the minority, but I always need to be dragged into a new gen of hardware. I've invested in the system and I'm not eager to start over from scratch. Part of it is money. New controllers and hardware can be expensive, but more and more ecological concerns gnaw at me. A device like the Switch contains not just the usual electronic components, which is bad enough, but also its own battery and screen, which a lot of people may not have even truly needed if they primarily played on a TV. The waste created during the era of Wii plastic peripherals was bad enough. This seems even worse. So people eagerly looking forward to the Switch Switch's retirement is particularly upsetting to me, especially since the bugs I've seen playing the latest Pokemon title wouldn't be solved by more processing power, but rather by a more sustainable development cycle. Sonic once said, I want shorter games with worse graphics made by people who are paid more to work less, and I'm not kidding. I'm starting to doubt he was sincere. 
Hardware obsolescence <laughs> is not an immutable law of nature. It's a choice we are making in our current ecological context. Should we not actually push for hardware manufacturers to stretch hardware generations for as long as possible and for developers to optimize for the hardware we have, not the hardware they want us to have? It doesn't take long after the start of a gen before we start seeing big games with bad frame rates. Why do we keep thinking it's a problem that we will finally solve for good if we can throw a bit more power at it? Beyond that of the Radio Free Nintendo podcast. It's a great point. It's a very good point. <laughs> yeah. And in uh, good context, Nintendo notoriously iffy on their shaking of components that go into their devices. Uh, in terms, like, look at the Conflict Minerals report that come out about electronics manufacturers. Nintendo has either a bad track record or just doesn't even want to, like, take part in the surveys mm-hmm. about their sourcing. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, mind you, these things are all relative. Apple, by all accounts, I guess, has a very good reputation from that standpoint. But then how apple devices are constructed like mm-hmm. is where you often find abuse entering the the production chain well and that you know to, to the point of the you know the the eu forcing them in, in a uh making their devices USB-C compliant you know they make their own proprietary cables that uh take up you know a billion parts a year so like you you create your own component ways to buy yeah you know yes their 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 devices may be more uh better sourced but also <laughs> everyone has a thousand lightning cables littering uh their <laughs> yeah. house in addition to the thousand of USB-C cables that are also littering their house because all their other devices run the other cable <laughs> but i think but i think it is a good point that I kind of have two thoughts when I when I see this. One is that, uh, yeah, I mean, there it, it may well be that, by and large, what is happening with uh, the latest Pokemon is is mostly that the optimization passes needed to make this thing work better were just not afforded to the the dev team. That ultimately, like most things, run like shit until they are given a lot of like time for optimizing and having them uh, operate well on hardware. That just well, and Game Freak released a big Pokemon game earlier this year. Yeah, right. Like the the cycle that they like the, the fact that Nintendo released like a major open world Pokemon game to start this year and then released another one to end the year suggests some like bad s- scheduling on their part. Yeah. So like no great shock that you know Japanese companies we don't get lots of reports about how those studios are are run, uh, but like. <laughs> You only have to look at this Pokemon game and the schedule Game Freak was on to to, to surmise that <laughs> maybe, maybe this game was not made under the most ideal labor conditions to result in a game uh, that was as polished as it, as it probably should be relative to the actual quality of the underlying game uh, itself. You said you had a second point. Uh, well, yeah, and I, and I think the, 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 other, the other thing that, I do bear in mind, though, is that the rep on the Switch from the start was that it was kind of underpowered from day one. And I do think this Mm -hmm. kind of moves the changes the context a little bit is that they've they've done a lot of good things with that with that hardware, great things with that hardware. But from the jump, this was always going to be a system that was kind of straining against its limits and. I think you see the sorts of games that that tend to struggle on the switch. We are not talking about uh, we are we are pushing the most polygons we possibly can. We need the latest uh, AI rendering technologies, et cetera. Like this is this is not the this is not what we're talking about. We're talking about like, uh, you know, fairly, fairly straight, like small scale tactics games and such with like terrible load times. Uh, you know, these lots of little places where where a significant amount of friction 
enters the experience of playing around with the switch. Uh, and this has been the case for four years. Now it is becoming acute. And so I, I, I do, I under, like, I think this, this email is very well taken. I do think hardware upgrades are a part of just what, like, uh, a part of, of life for a lot of us and our, and our various goods. I think there should be a lot more scrutiny subjected to when are the gains important enough that it is that there's there's value in spinning up a new production pipeline or moving everyone over to a new standard. I think the switch, though, is one of those places where it is pretty clear that there does need to be some sort of successor solution. You're tapping at the metal, yeah. like you're scratching at the metal of what's available there. And I think one thing, broadly speaking, like I haven't sat here and done the math, but I think you can, I think it is the case that hardware cycles are longer than they've ever been. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, between a combination of, you know, more scrutiny on the sourcing of these devices and trying to make them more recyclable, and then also the fact that hardware cycles are approaching a decade in between like major transitions, um, all that stuff is helpful. Um, but, it, you know, at the same time, you also have it's like, well, the rise of cloud computing just means we have you may not be in your home, but you're just running massive server farms doing the same doing, running different devices somewhere else for you to play it through your your TVs. So, um, I mean, frankly, I think a lot of like the solution to this is less on consumers uh, rewarding or not rewarding companies with their dollars. But like so many other things, um, it is increased regulatory and legislative scrutiny on how these devices are sourced and made um, in the same way that like, you know, car companies are essentially forced to make their, their cars more fuel efficient over time because they can, but they wouldn't unless there was essentially like a, a regulatory pressure pushing them that direction. And I think it's very easy to imagine a world in which like there, there was more pressure on how these devices are built and sourced that the companies would just figure it out because they want to make money. And so they'll go figure out whatever loophole they have to jump through to, to make that work. Um, kind of, I think you had a point earlier that you were, you were trying to say something. Well, I mean, I was, I was just going to say that given uh, like you, like, like, like uh, Rob was already, has already mentioned though, just given where they started, they already started kind of the behind mm-hmm. the, you know, behind the, the the curve on on what power was already in the, the original switch it it's all it's really the only one that feels like okay it does kind of make sense at this point like even 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 with their like cloud um uh like solutions that they've they've been doing like I've seen some of those don't even run super well either so like I mean that's also got to do with networks and stuff but still um Pokemon looks real, real, real bad on my 4K TV. Let me just say that. <laughs> yeah, I don't even. I don't even. I don't even like playing well, Switch games. I just I want to hear about your 4K TV, Kato. This is the problem. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, I'm. I don't play Switch games docked anymore because they just don't. No, they don't look good. I was kind <laughs> of floored the last it. time I hooked up to the to this TV. I was like, oh shit, oh no, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I, don't, yeah. I played. I played most of uh, Breath of the Wild on that same TV, 
and like it didn't bother me as much right like they did they did something smart with the way that they uh lit and framed that game even though it was still you know a 1080 output or whatever um but it makes things where like especially like especially the pokemon game just like really stand out more than mm-hmm. uh than the normal but I, but I do think it's it, it does like I I do think there's there, there's a really valid point here though which which is that there is a lot of if we can just throw more hardware at a problem it will allow us to it will require less of us in terms of like the final fit and finish on mm-hmm. a game uh and also it is there there is a lot of we know how to sell progress. We don't necessarily, we're less good, I think at selling design and that can be aesthetic design or just like game design. Uh, you know, that is, that is tougher to showcase, uh, in a, in a trailer or, or in an ad. And so this is an industry that is, it is so reliant on the notion that, and on this machine, things will look this good. Mm -hmm. And to your point, Kato, like a lot of times, you know, appropriate, art direction will create a certain timelessness as well as mask limitations uh, very effectively that just sort of, you know, opening the spigots and being like, we got a huge hardware budget here, you know, go wild. Often you will not end up with something particularly memorable, nor on scrutiny, something that looks particularly good. Mm -hmm. Uh, But yeah, there, I think a lot of the push for, for these kind of advancements, come from come from those places uh but yeah at the, at the same time i think the the switch is definitely in an outlier case right now compared to the rest of the environment where like it just isn't there right now and hasn't been for a minute and so again there needs to be a successor device we just don't know what that one looks like and and hopefully maybe nintendo can uh adopt a better approach with it mm-hmm. than necessarily uh you know what the decisions they made with the life cycle of the of the switch i do, I do wonder uh this is me speaking slightly about uh out of my ass but that the advancements in ai upscaling i wonder if that will event- inevitably contribute to folks not feeling as much of a need to upgrade in the future or at the pace that they would uh in the past Where, like it's not hard to imagine like this ai stuff is getting so good so fast that in five years, can you just have a card that would like the AI upscaling will just take, just help like essentially you ratchet that up as games get out of pace with the graphics card that you have in your machine. And that for, there will be certainly a market for people that want to buy the best. It'll look it like you'll be able to run it natively. Like there will always be a market for that. But like at a certain point, will we just hit like that the AI upscaling can do the job that well, is good enough for most people. And, and it already feels like there's so many games that I, I'm I am not sure I got to check the like use DLSS button in Midnight Suns, but it sure feels like it just is using that uh mm-hmm. now. And and so like in terms of yeah, how how rendering happens has changed so much that I do not know what that's going to look like in the next few years because we are already at a point where increasingly the recommended way to run a game is not through native rendering. It's through some other like technique like this. And there's a lot of games that effectively, and I would say cyberpunk was, was like this out of the box. Cyberpunk didn't work without sort of the AI assisted rendering. Like that DLSS yeah, well, that when game I, when didn't I, fucking work. 
when I played uh, the the new Plague Tale game, um, you know, I, I bought this PC, you know, th- this year um, with a, a totally decent modern graphics card. And it was that game famously had before a major patch that just happened a lot of frame rate issues. And so a lot of games don't turn on the DLSS when they boot up. That's something I can go and futz with. And so I was having these frame issues like, well, this is really disappointing. Like this machine is like eight months old, but I just went in, turned on the very lowest of the DLSS and then boom, just like locked like 60 to 90, like buttery smooth, could not tell a single difference in how it looked. And I was like, that's, it's just so easy to imagine in a couple of years Especially think like in scales of five, 10 years where that stuff just becomes indistinguishable from like what you're doing natively, that at some point it starts to really call into question what kind of hardware you're buying this, that when you're buying it, um, that I think raises some really interesting questions, especially when like, that's unfortunately consoles. I know consoles have like some, the Xbox and the PlayStation do have something that developers can soon start tapping into. I actually think the upcoming Witcher uh, uh, like a, uh, update for next gen is ha- has some of that on Xbox and PlayStation, but that is one of the like I-, I wouldn't be surprised if we don't really get like PlayStation Five Pros and Xbox Series X point two two point like two point but it's very easy to imagine like a mid generation upgrade that came with AI upscaling. That's like hey, like these machines really can't like we're losing performance modes, but you can keep that. If you have like the, the upgraded graphics card that has the AI upscaling and then you can keep your 60 frames a second and also you can run into 4K and not take a huge hit. That, that's where I see a lot of that stuff going in the in, in the future or potentially. Well, this is anyway. one of the major selling points of like NVIDIA's 4000 series cards is they're like and it's got the new generation of DLSS support and it's yeah, going to it look awesome. It, it does. <laughs> but like it is so telling that like we're you know, new generation here, more powerful than ever. And they're not being like, and you're going to render all this shit natively. It's going to look awesome. They're like, and it's going to do, it's going to do the DLSS better than ever. Uh, and you, you just read about what these things do with like the, you know, look ahead rendering and, and such like what they're able to do is so different than, than it used to be. But I, yeah, I do come out of it wondering what does that mean for the future? Cause I, cause I do think, you look at a lot of this and it does seem like it would take less pressure off the hardware cycle. But then you remember, mm-hmm. at least right now, as currently constructed, NVIDIA wants to be selling people cards that do a bunch of shit. Yeah. Like there's like yeah. it's not in their interest to be like, and there it is, folks. We are <laughs> we have run up against the physical limits of what we can do on the do on the chip. Uh, and from here, it's all going to be this sort of like uh, you know, AI AI assisted technology, et cetera, and you don't need to you don't need to keep buying these cards. It's going to be how do we create, like, put more things on the card that can be done that justify a new generation. And I think the the point is well taken here that there will always be someone being like, obviously, you need this new new standard, uh, and you got to upgrade to it because it's it's there's too much convenience there to for mm-hmm. for us to pass up on it. But it does kind of feel like we might be at that point where for a lot of what we play that's not going to be the solution. A lot of us probably have the hardware we need sitting at home. It's just a matter of, of using it effectively. And you know, too often that that doesn't happen. Like I still have moments where I'd, I'd like the series X, but there's still times I, I think about like, you know, the Xbox one X. Cause I was just setting up for my dad. I was like, materially, I don't know that I feel there's still a lot of daylight between those two systems. I really just, I really just don't, um, you know, it's, it, there's some convenient features with the series X, but 
if I hadn't been sent it by Microsoft, would it have represented such a, you know, an unnecessary upgrade? I don't I don't think so. PS5 to PS4, that's a different story. PS5, yeah. <laughs> give me, give me that. Uh, technology is good. <laughs> uh, Source those minerals into my um, into my condo. <laughs> Uh, speaking of uh, sourcing minerals, uh, <laughs> Anonymous writes, I'm playing Modern Warfare 2, and of course there can't be a modern war without PMCs, private military contractors. My question is, has calling them PMCs instead of mercenaries made them seem more legitimate and respectable? I'm sure there's been good mercenaries, but I usually never hear about them. Uh, boy, I sure feel like two things made the PMC commonplace. One is... Metal Gear Solid 4, Guns yeah. of the Patriots. Yes, mm-hmm. yep. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> Two, the Bush administration not having enough troops to invade Iraq with and being like, we'll just hire gunmen uh, to, to send to that country and do like, you know, part of it was army can't, army doesn't feed itself. Army has contractors to that now, but increasingly they're also like, we need troops that are going to be shooting at people and committing war crimes. And we don't have enough soldiers for that either. So we're going to hire private military contractors. And that was, I think, the first time a lot of people realized, like, wait, doesn't the army do that? And it was like, Mm -hmm. there's not enough army. We have to privatize parts of it. And this is how you end up things with, uh, you know, like like Blackwater and such end up uh, becoming sort of infamous and and leading to a whole bunch of, uh, you know, abuses and and also a lot of weird strife internal uh, to coalition forces uh, in Iraq. But I think those two things like PMCs wasn't a thing I was aware of. And then like 2003, 2004, and then that game comes out and everyone's like PMCs. Yeah. The weird thing is, I think because of the context, I also feel like PMCs have a worse rep than mercenaries. <laughs> I feel like I feel like it's even, <laughs> an even more sinister term. Uh, cause like mercenaries have been around forever and yeah, like nobody likes the idea of a soldier, soldier for hire, a soldier, soldier, for, for a soldier of fortune. But I don't know. I feel like when you hear the word PMCs immediately, you think about like a lot of modern sketchy shit, uh, that is, that is trying to be sort of wrapped in a, a degree of like faux legitimacy, but yeah, the term the term is so sketchy. It raises so many alarm bells that to me it almost feels like it's kind of worse than saying we hired mercenaries. It's kind of yeah, the same I, I, though, so isn't I, it? Oh. <laughs> I mean, does mercenaries sound dirtier? I don't know. Maybe we need a new term. Uh, maybe we've we've lost the plot on both of them. <laughs> Battletech. You're playing mercenaries, but you're cool. You're awesome. <laughs> you're cool. People like people like the like the Seven Samurai. The village scrapes together money. We're gonna buy mercenaries mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. gonna have them absolutely wreck, wreck these Ronin. Cool. We love that shit. And so I I, I do but think like I I feel like mercenary is more of a I value neutral term than PMC. I feel like it's less. It's I feel like it's those examples are less the. Uh, the term used as far as like the context, right? Like they're being bought for like legitimate good reasons, right? Like uh, if anyone ever used a PMC for like quote unquote good, whatever that could even mean uh, reasons, would it like clear, like 
change the view of that name maybe but like it's it definitely yeah i mean it's it's it, it feels like there's no getting around how just like once that especially in the popular conscience like once once that let's say game hit and like people understood like oh right this it's just the new word that has supplanted what mercenaries are right like i don't know that like those are really in modern contexts exist separately really like no but i think who tends to use the term is that i think that's why it's so illuminating right. when it crops up right because it's like states use it to obscure the fact that we're hiring mercenaries and we're waging right. war but we don't know don't want to acknowledge it like <laughs> saying pmc is acknowledge is like trying to mask that there's like state violence happening if a state is doing it hire like calling them pmcs if you're like a corporation is trying to mask the fact that like hi we're a corporation <laughs> yeah, we're wielding a corporation. the lethal violence of a state on yeah. behalf of corporate aims uh-huh. uh so I, I i don't know to me to me it feels like the term uh like you hear it more because like that is how it is often being couched by the sorts of people who in the past would have hired mercenaries but i do feel like the term is the term is worse now it just feels <laughs> like you know cassie and andor is a mercenary <laughs> not a pmc that's 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 my take um yeah luthan hasn't organized into a <laughs> organized that group into a pmc yet right exactly it's exactly. just loose loose individuals uh let's see here so uh brian writes question for rob what is your level of interest in sim racing beyond f1 Watching recent streams of Motorsports Mondays got me interested in getting a wheel and pedals. I've always enjoyed racing games, but have not put much time into racing games since Gran Turismo 3 in the summer of 2001. I bought a Logitech G29 as a starter wheel to dip my toes in and see just how much interest I have in this hobby. I started with YouTube videos and playing games such as Assetto Corsa. Now I am neck deep in research of direct drive wheels, load cell pedals, extruded aluminum cockpits. What kind of monitor setup do I use? Do I buy one ultra-wide for ease of setup, or do I use triple monitors? Seeing how quickly the cost of setting any of this up can easily exceed the cost of an actual car itself, I genuinely enjoy the act of researching or learning as much as I can on a new hobby, but I was wondering if this particular bug has ever bitten you, Rob. Thanks, Brian. Uh, yeah, so, like, again, to the point of, like... <laughs> We'll see what happens if my the once my office is built out, if that ever ends up happening. Uh, mm. But there's times I think if I had space for it, a fucking yeah, like full racing rig would be an awesome thing to have. And yes, like the cost can approach the cost of a car. That's true. A <laughs> shitty cheap car. <laughs> but with the racing setup. Uh-huh. You can create a pretty good facsimile of driving a ton of different cool cars. So, how far does this go? Is this just like a a nice a nice seat with the wheel in front of it, or is this like a no, a like capsule? hydraulic force feedback? Yeah, it's almost like a capsule, like hydraulic <laughs> force feedback, where you are going to have like like multiple points of action, like of like actuation yeah. uh-huh. uh, around you, so that right. they like. Things like road surface and such can be communicated to you. Uh, yeah. Uh, and like, I forget how did you, did you fuck around with the thing that they had at uh, E3 a couple years ago, like promoting Forza? That's where they had like Microsoft had a whole the, at the last really E3. fancy. Uh, this is a, this is, I think 
two E3s before that. Oh, they had a really fancy thing there, for unfortunately. I feel like they I feel like this was one you were there for. It just Okay. I might I might, I'm totally missed yeah. that then. No, yeah. So it was sick as hell. <laughs> and it was and also a little scary because like I haven't mm. driven like powerful sports cars in my life. Like never. And so in this setup, when I hit the gas on a I think it was race night Ferrari or something, and like the whole thing snapped back to model the feeling of the acceleration. Uh-huh. So like it tips back like, so you get the feeling of being thrown back against your seat. Right. By the acceleration. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> But also, I was like, I've never felt more alive. <laughs> and so uh, I am like, I, I do love the the idea of this. But the thing that I worry about with stuff like this is there's the whole acquiring and building of the thing and like mm. making sure it works with all the stuff that you regularly play. That's all. That's all. Whatever. Any setup like this requires a maintenance budget. And that maintenance mm. budget is mostly time, not money. It wow. is about ability to troubleshoot and address errors as they crop up or, you know, be able to figure out like eh, something's a little weird and just strip like I need to open up parts of it and see what's going on and, and all that. And that these I feel, hydraulics. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. This is where I start to feel like uh, it would be a bit daunting uh, for me because, yeah, there would be a lot of. It's a bit like taking up a bit of like hobby racing. It's OK, you know owning the car is part of it but now you better get like real good at doing ba- basic maintenance on right. it uh otherwise it. like it's just not practical and i think something similar happens with this now i will say there's a lot more companies servicing the sector than there have been in the past but i've so short answer is it has bitten me i am interested i've done a <laughs> bit of research but mostly i've done research to realize like i think brian's further along than i am uh, with with understanding wh- like all the various uh, approaches to accomplishing this end, I'm a little bit behind that, but I'm very I'm very curious. Like people have already told me, like you got to get a direct drive wheel. And I believe you. I don't fully know what that means, but I believe you. But you know, I also still feel like I'm a little ways away from making making that commitment. <laughs> um, last email here. Uh, and this, I think, goes back to when Patrick was doing a bit of remodeling of his office. Uh, hello, way- <laughs> hello, waypointers. Is this the one we're settling on? Uh, I'm listening to your recent dip into the question bucket about. Uh, oh, this is this is the wrong one. Sorry. Uh, this is from Alex in Chicago. Oh, this is much more confrontational. Patrick <laughs> is doing it all wrong. He's got the L-shaped yeah. desk. Uh, but what he really needs is an L-shaped monitor configuration. Hear me out. When you're using G-Docs on a landscape-oriented monitor, half the screen is going unused. Portrait, you've got... Uh, this is what, what he means by the L. Portrait, L, you've got not, way not more like screen this. dedicated L. to what you're writing. Let's scroll in between sections of a piece, report, whatever, because it's all right there. So the true way to set up a good workflow is to keep one monitor in standard landscape, but the other rotated to portrait. If you're using a word processor, it lives on that screen. Given how hellbent towards efficiency Patrick is, I think he also (laughs) needs the mouse of a gamer, but not for gaming. I don't know what it's like being a games journalist, but I can guess there's some keyboard shortcuts you're hitting pretty frequently. 
Every time you do this, you're wasting precious seconds moving your left hand to hit the requisite keys. Maybe even glance down to make sure your hands are in the right place. Instead, you could bind those frequently used shortcuts to the programmable buttons of a gaming mouse. I, for example, <laughs> use a Logitech G502 wireless with copy, paste, unfor- copy, paste unformatted, hyperlink, gdocker and gmail oh, and screenshot unformatted s- screenshot mm. of selected area all bound to various buttons you never Shit. realize oh, how much time you're wasting doing these things till it's just a mouse click versus multiple keystrokes wow control shift s could go away yeah just yeah. put that on a fucking button macro on one of those mmo mice yeah well i got two on here right these are probably programmable on this logic maybe. Thing. Yeah. right yeah maybe what could those be Gonna be the M dash go on here? <laughs> M dash on the thumb. Yeah. Holy shit. Well, I, fi- I finally, I finally moved away. F- Sorry, finish the email. Finish the email. Oh, that's it. Loving all the talk lately about everyone's home setups, be it Rob speakers or Patrick's desk. Thanks for the awesome pod, Alex from Chicago. Um. Well, it is true. I don't like my desk, but unfortunately, I lived with like <laughs> I had to live with the decision I made earlier that made more sense before because I'd have to like redo everything. Like it's like you'd ha- like it was just sort of. Like the L shape is what I settled on because that's just made sense with the, the aesthetic of the room. And then someday in the future, when maybe my kids are both in school and the daycare money frees up, you know, I could do something more ambitious. But the I did move when someone noted the M dash was the, you know, hold alt zero one five one. Uh, I did move to that world so that I could just do that when I'm writing instead of having to copy paste. That was revelatory. But the notion that I could. Drop it here on the on the mouse. I feel like the M dash does deserve, and also the the screenshot the one screenshot is also one. probably the one I use the most. I use that all especially because the, the especially time. In this era of WebP. Yes, yes, a hundred percent. So I'm gonna look into that. I'm I will. I'm sure I have the Logitech software. I just didn't. I've never these. I think they might be just bound bound to like back. They're just bound to back and forth right now. But I don't. I don't use that that much. So I think I'd rather have an M dash and a capture screenshot that's that's incredibly useful but the vertical thing no i can't i don't think i i looked into it when i bought the dual monitor setup like when i was switching to the two dell 1440p monitors i was like okay do i want to get one where i could rotate it and i decided against it because i i don't that would be weird to write in that was too much for me like and maybe in the maybe in the future if i fully upgrade this setup i could i could go down that route but the notion of a vertical monitor all the time writing into that that's just maximum screens i can't so i i do think so yeah the the like writing into a huge scroll of text i think would be a bit much but i do think about how easy it would be like in this setup for instance i could have y'all on the upper half of the screen Mm. uh and then below that a still perfectly sizable like work area for a document or uh, to to have like Reaper's little uh you know the the recording track there mm-hmm. with plenty of can, space. Can you not do that with like this happens sometimes when I drag a window over and I see like these spaces that I can do. Is that like is that trying oh, to so, do? So, okay, so yeah, so do you know yeah, what I'm talking about? The, like I'm doing it right yes. now. I I hold it towards the top and then Windows is like, do you want to put this into like a trio of? Yes. I, I've never done it. So is that how is, that works? Yeah, a bit. But the thing is like. The nature of a 16 by 9 monitor still means that there's going to be inconvenient. You know what I mean? It's just it, it's a it's mm-hmm, it's horizontally mm-hmm, oriented. And mm-hmm. there's just a lot of things that like it is more useful to. To have them vert- like most things 
build up and down and they don't build out side to side uh, with, mm-hmm. with usable area. And so for a, for a lot of software that I think we use day to day, you'd be better served by having it sort of stacked on top of each other vertically rather than having it, uh, you know, sort of fighting for space in a horizontally oriented space. Like this is, this is neat though. This is the first time I've actually dragged it over, like doing this while reading off of a script for a podcast. Like that could be useful. Like yeah. rather than putting my head back and forth. Hmm. Is this co- We're learning new efficiencies. Which browser? Do you not are you pop using, up. I, well, which I browser is this? What? You pop up what? I pop out. Say? I pop out the chat. So we live up here. Mm-hmm. As a bar, I do not do that. But like this, this, this setup that I've got going on here. If I just had the doc next to it, so I didn't, because it's like easier to be able to look at people and also read off of the. The same document. Hey, look, th- thank you to this email. Discoveries being made. Th- you know, like these these little grid of icons that I ignore every time I drag a window open over. Like this is actually incredibly useful. I- I'm going to 100% use this setup when I have to read off a- of a script for a podcast. That's so much nicer. Thank you. Who is this person? Uh, Alex from Chicago. Again. Alex from Chicago. I wish I could say let's get a beer when I'm in Chicago, but I never go to the city, so... Here, uh, oh, you sh- now you're experimenting with well, your, how I, no, this your is, different this layouts. Is how I do it. I pop out, I pop out mm. our video, and that goes up top, and then I leave this here so I can see everything. But when you click around, mm-hmm. does it change? It changes the layering, right? Uh, like you have to leave this static and not touch it, right? Well. Yeah, but I mean, I don't lose much. So that's the ben- that's the benefit of the yeah. setup I was showing you is that it's I can click between Discord and Chrome, and it has them both as it doesn't treat them as though they're like windowed layers. It is though I have actually diced right, up right, right. the display. Um, it te- it, and there's, there's and like very you, little overlap though. I I, I have yeah. like a little panel. I see what you're you're doing. Yeah, you're you're doing what. Yeah, you're doing a version of what yeah, I'm yeah. I'm doing. Oh, here. see, so mine I've got. This is what I'm doing now, but remember I got that Windows Power Toys thing because of a, a yes, listener email Power Toys. Like dealing with the right. issues of the of the ultra wide monitor. Mm-hmm. So, oh my god, <laughs> yeah, I mean, so this is the same things. idea though, right? Yeah, this is the same idea. You're just chopping it up into vertical columns, um, right? Instead. But mm-hmm. there's but mm-hmm. there are places where I do think it'd be just more efficient to just have a vertical monitor somewhere in, in the picture. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, these right. are all things that are under consideration for uh, the new office. <laughs> are, you, are you, are you actively considering getting rid of your ultra wide? No, but it might just be integrated into a different like <laughs> right. setup. Okay. Like, I mean, yes, <laughs> ideally Kato, cause, cause you know how I love, I've been, I've been, I've been, you know, at the seams of streaming off the same PC being used to play the game, like it uh-huh. sucks. I hate it. <laughs> but just imagine if it were all like on a different capture box. Uh huh. Like, just imagine. <laughs> Everything would be perfect. Just <laughs> imagine. Let's fast forward a year from now. We're still imagining different displays. All sorts of cool things. And an easier life for Kato. Probably not. <laughs> Instead, probably a lot more questions. But Kato, my capture box is fucked. Mm. Time to do my favorite thing: remote tech, remote tech support. Well, I thought you'd be excited, but now, <laughs> now I guess you hate the idea. 
That'd be good. Uh, It'd be good for the content. <laughs> it could be good. Uh, anyway, let's uh, let's make that a wrap on today's episode of Waypoint Radio. We we ended up tripping into five star runtimes uh, territory with the with the Fergus oh interview. Uh, if you want more from Waypoint, you can follow us at Waypoint Facebook and YouTube Waypoint Vice. You can follow me on Twitter at Rob Zachney. Uh, Ricardo, where can people follow you? At a underscore Cotto underscore appears on Twitter for now, I guess. That's website still exists, right? For the moment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't think, yeah, I don't think it's, unfortunately, I don't think it's going anywhere. I think it's just going to turn into sludge. Damn. So, <laughs> uh, uh, but you can find me mucking around the sludge <laughs> at Patrick Klupik. It's like the anti-sludge. The post, I don't know. The post that post, post already sucks. Bad. I signed up. It's already sucks. Like I, I got approved for it this weekend. Somebody, immediately. somebody talking about. I think it was. I think it was Taylor Lawrence about like. Oh, you know, this is Mark Andreessen like shithole uh, website. Boo, like, nope. gross. Nope, not for me. Uh, anyway, thank. Uh, you can check out we published on waypoint.vice.com. Uh, I think this week we'll have an interview drop, a, a review dropping of Marvel's Midnight Suns. I don't know what I'm going to say yet. I've got uh, you know a couple days to figure that out. Uh, but but by that point, I'll have some sort of serviceable snapshot in time uh, you can read. And thanks to Waypoint Plus, we've been uh, able to have a bunch of fun streams lately. I think this at some point this week, we're going to make time to finish up the devil in me. Mm hmm. Shouldn't take too long. We don't have many characters left to play in The Devil and Me. <laughs> uh, Attrition has been very bad uh, in the H.A. Tom's recreation house. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we will we will we will see who survives uh, the, the denouement of that playthrough. Uh, Patrick is going to continue uh, playing through Cyberpunk. Patrick, you're, you're thinking you're going to mm-hmm. push that to Friday this week? I think so. I I I've been, been invited on to do a uh, a podcast with uh, Next Lander, and so uh, I'm 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 choosing to to move that to Friday. I think as a result, and uh, there will be a Motorsports Monday by the time you are listening to this. Uh, we're gonna circle back and figure out if it's going to be a, a another chapter in the saga of Oberoff Racing because my schedule's changed a bit today, or mm. uh, whether or not. I'll play a bit of WRC Generations, uh, but look for look for that VOD uh, when you get a chance over at twitch.tv slash Waypoint. If all that sounds good or you just want more Waypoint, you go to waypointplus.com and subscribe. Not only get access to our premium feed, but you're also helping support Waypoint and everything else we do here. Uh, and if you want to show not just support, but zeal, go to waypointgeneralstore.com and buy some of our fine Waypoint merch. Our theme music is by Bowen. The track is Miss You off the EP Pale Machine. Learn more at waypoint.zone slash B-O-E-N. For now, we are calling time on this Tuesday. We will talk to you again on Friday. Till then, fuck capitalism. Go home. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. 
Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium.